threats of increased police funding and longer prison sentences did not send a message to any of the people in my life who caused and experienced harm. The problem is the pipes underneath the surface. Millions of people experience sexual violence every year because of deep underlying systems, ideas, and laws that police cannot solve. No more than continuously flushing a toilet will solve plumbing issues. For example, if we unearth the layers of seemingly innocuous marital markers that little girls are taught to covet, like changing our last name after we marry, we'll find histories of women as property owned first by their fathers and then by their husbands. Joining last names was a symbolic gesture and legal arrangement. Women were barred from land ownership and obtaining loans without their husband's permission. They couldn't even legally own their own bodies. The last U.S. state to recognize marital rape did so in 1993, a year before VAWA passed. By law and custom, men could not rape their own wives because they owned them. I found in political education and organizing what I had not been taught elsewhere— that sexual violence, especially against women, is not mere mistreatment, but a phenomenon that maintained inequality and exploitation. Capitalism fosters sexual violence by creating categories of people who cannot leave abusive relationships, classrooms, and jobs because they do not have resources to sustain themselves. Sexual violence aids capitalism by creating hostile relationships, schools, and workplaces that helps companies more easily pay low wages to people in vulnerable situations, like women, disabled people, undocumented immigrants, and transgender people, as I discussed in the last chapter. Taunts, catcalling, sexual abuse, and the threat thereof additionally constrains the ability of the people who experience it to move freely in the world. For example, the black man in that Boston courtroom who repeatedly made comments about my body impeded my ability to represent my clients. I could have quit or requested a different court. The boyfriend who stalked me could have forced me to drop out of school. The women who divorced their husbands at church often left. The men usually stayed and remarried. Sexual violence under capitalism excluded one group from thriving, in this case women, and permitted another group, in this case men, to acquire and hoard the excess jobs, property, church positions, dorm rooms, and class seats. Police cannot prevent sexual violence because they protect the institutions that keep these cycles in place. They can only punish some of the people who are caught. Sexual violence and resistance to it does not happen in a vacuum. It is swept up in all of the other oppressive systems of exploitation, extraction, and exclusion that has to be undermined and abolished. As a kid, my mom had taught me about black women resisting sexual violence on the plantation. From the shores to the ships to the slave plantations, black women faced and resisted sexual violence from white men who enacted it out of punishment, thrill, pleasure, experimentation, revenge, curiosity, and breeding. All hostile acts to maintain systems of subordination and violence. Breeding and forced reproduction were needed to perpetuate slavery. 
And like the activists I'd organized with in law school, organizers I'd worked with as a lawyer emphasized that we needed to resist that violence, as well as the capitalism, colonialism, and patriarchy underneath it. At the very first Action St. Louis training in 2017, Kayla taught the group about Celia, a 19-year-old black woman who killed her slave master and burned his body for repeatedly sexually assaulting her for five years. A judge issued a call for six lawful men to inquire about the death. They arrested and ultimately jailed Celia. She initially denied the act, even when one of the questioners threatened her with a rope. But with the persistence of the threats to her life and her children's lives, they forced her to confess. A judge appointed her a credible lawyer so that the trial would appear fair. Her lawyer was a slave owner. The attorney argued self-defense, which did not win over the all-white jury that contained slave owners, too. They found her guilty and sentenced her to death. Celia, a slave, author, Melton Alonza, writes that a sympathetic person likely helped Celia escape from jail, but did not intend to free her. The evidence suggests that Celia's benefactors were not prepared to ignore Missouri law totally, so once her original execution date had passed, and it appeared that the Supreme Court would have an opportunity to hear her appeal, Celia was returned to jail. Since she was pregnant, the courts decided to delay her execution until she gave birth to a third child, who was stillborn. She was then hanged for the murder. This training had been the first time I learned about Celia, and I had to leave the room to gather myself afterward. The law has been a means of sexual violence toward the end of racial subordination, gender subordination, and wealth accumulation through the reproduction of children. White men were not legally punished for raping black women under slavery, and in Missouri, black male slaves could not be charged either. Missouri rape law required that men of all races were to be punished by castration for raping white women, just as the biblical law that required the same stoning for any adulterers, regardless of sex. Yet in a fundamentally unequal society, there's no such thing as equal application of the law. There is no record of any punishment for white men who sexually assaulted white women, only records of black men. This was the foundation of the law in the U.S., the same law that cops and prosecutors purportedly used to keep descendants of Celia and other black women safe. I'd meet black women organizers at other trainings or campaigns who understood this history, often more intimately than I did. Our conversations were a train ride. We shared so many stops on the way to freedom. We agreed that the law atrociously enabled sexual violence. We applauded the people who fled and fought back. And as we approached the abolition stop, passengers started moving to the exit doors. They wanted black women to be safe and were critical, or at least concerned, that abolition would leave us more vulnerable. I did not want that either, even though I cannot personally recall anyone in my life ever calling the police about sexual abuse. They worried that the police would violate them as well or take their children. 
Some wanted to end the harm and preserve the relationship. In their words, they did not want to send anybody to jail, especially a black man who did not already have a criminal record, and especially a black man who did. These women were negotiating the terms of their sexual violence within a broader context of white supremacy and the system of mass incarceration that had to be eradicated. But beyond my life, many black women did call the cops for sexual assault. In fact, black and Hispanic victims report violent crimes at higher rates, 49%, than white victims, 37%. Of all races, black women report sexual violence at the highest rates. Equally important, Black, Latinx, and Asian women are more likely to remain with their partners following rape. Women of color who are vulnerable to sexual violence are not naturally born ride-or-die partners, but as several studies explain, economic resources play a particularly significant role in women's ability to leave, as those women who are most likely to leave their partners were the ones who are financially independent. Black, multiracial, and undocumented women have greater risk of being in precarious economic and living arrangements. For example, immigration and customs enforcement and border patrol are threats to immigrants, especially undocumented ones, and refugees who risk arrest, detention, and deportation if they report. Immediate resources and long-term commitments to end economic exploitation will reduce sexual violence. And abolishing policing, ICE, and Border Patrol will eliminate the additional threats to people who deserve relief from violence. White heterosexual women report sexual violence less and leave their sexually violent marriages more because they have more resources, including wealth, income, child care, and even the likelihood of meeting new partners in their social lives because white men are not surveilled, policed, and imprisoned like Black, Latinx, and Indigenous men. Centuries of patriarchal, colonial, and capitalist arrangements exacerbates these crises by excluding women from the labor market, exploiting their labor in employment settings, and extracting their labor in the home for unpaid work and families that is disproportionately relegated to them, mothering, partnering, and taking care of parents. Single white men under the age of 35 have a median wealth that is 3.5 times the size of single white women and 224.2 times greater than single black women. Those of us who want black women, all women, and anyone to be safe from sexual violence must also be committed to eradicating the inequality that makes us vulnerable to exploitation and sexual abuse and create a world where we all can flourish. Celia did not need black women slaves to have mere equal protection to white women under the law from sexual violence. White women weren't even fully protected. In the short term, she needed to permanently escape the plantation and the jail instead of the people who returned her because they had faith that the legal system might spare her. Ultimately, Celia and the millions of people who suffered sexual abuse like her needed the abolition of a society that could have masters who could harm them 
they needed the abolition of slavery as a source of sexual violence. Resistance to European settler colonialism in North America, Australia, and the Caribbean can also serve as resistance to sexual violence. Europeans used sexual violence against indigenous people as a form of punishment, domination, and control. In the Caribbean, an indigenous woman viciously fought Christopher Columbus when he kidnapped and raped her. He journaled about it as a part of his colonial conquest. On the mainland, historian Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz writes, sexual abuse of both girls and boys was also rampant. Much documentation and testimony attest to the never-ending resistance by children in boarding schools. Running away was the most common way to resist, but there were also acts of non-participation and sabotage, secretly speaking their languages and practicing ceremonies. This surely accounts for their survival, but the damage is nearly incomprehensible. The legacies of sexual violence and policing in indigenous communities continue today under ongoing conditions of sexual violence. More than one in three American Indian and Alaska Native women will be raped in their lifetime, compared to one in five of all women. While sexual violence usually occurs within race, this is not true for Native American women. Most of the people who violate them are white. 86% of reported cases of rape or sexual assault are by non-Native men. And like other women, Indigenous women underreport sexual violence to the police from fear of being assaulted or ignored by them as well. Due to colonialism, reservations have severely limited jurisdiction to prosecute non-natives, usually white people, for acts of sexual violence. When tribal governments have attempted to use reservation police to stop violence from white men, the U.S. federal government refused to grant them jurisdiction. But states and the federal government maintain the power to police and imprison indigenous people who experience arrest and incarceration at double the rate of their white counterparts. Police violence and inaction make the institution ripe not only for abolition, but also purposes of decolonization. People who identify or are perceived as LGBTQIA are also subjected to sexual violence as a result of capitalism, patriarchy, transphobia, and homophobia. The lack of social safety nets in the U.S. create housing insecurity, employment precarity, stigma, and other forms of marginalization that leave people vulnerable to all violence, including sexual violence. Marginalization creates more precarity and more sexual violence, which lesbian, gay, and bisexual people experience at similar or higher rates than heterosexual people. Bisexual men and women experience the highest rates of sexual violence. Nearly half have been raped in their lifetimes. Activists and researchers attribute this violence to people attempting to dominate and control their sexual identities to make them choose one, or the violence arose out of the expectation that their attraction to more than one gender means they want sex. 
This form of policing the sexualities and identities of others and punishing them for it begins early. In middle school, I remember boys who teased my girl teammates on our co-ed football teams for being gay because they hadn't been with a real man yet. These ideas are breeding grounds for corrective rape, a sexual violence phenomenon where straight people attempt to make queer people straight through discipline or thrill. When I started working with Action STL and other organizations around abolition after law school, we discussed how these forced binaries and marginalization led to all kinds of violence. Even though I had started practicing law, it wasn't until I enrolled my kid in pre-kindergarten that I realized how early children were exposed to cisgender norms and sexual binaries. One year, Juice's teachers sent home a list of kids' names, separated into boys and girls for a class Valentine's Day party. First, I laughed. Why did my three-year-old need gender-specific Valentine's Day cards? He was too young to date, but he was subtly being conditioned around a binary that encouraged him to choose blue race car cards for boys and pink fluffy unicorn cards for girls. The teacher was not being malicious. Everything else in the school was broken into binaries. Good morning, boys and girls, sang through the announcement speaker at the top of each day. There were lines for boys and for girls, sports for boys and for girls, and bathrooms for boys and for girls. Each day, these students lived in a world where only two genders existed, and for Valentine's Day, they had to give gifts based on them. That year, I immediately tried to expand my kids' ideas about gender and sexuality, though at the time, I lacked the courage to say something to the teacher. I wish I had. The following school year, my son sat at a table assigned to boys. As his classmate from his pre-K class pointed to each of them, saying, You're a girl, and you're a girl. Each kid was mortified. They laughed and screamed and melted out of their chairs onto the floor because what could be worse? The classmate pointed to curse juice. I was late for work, but I hid in the doorway anyway to observe. Juice responded in his little voice, It's okay. Anybody can be a girl. I was so, so proud. A few months later, I took Juice to get his first manicure so that we could relax after a hard week. When we arrived, the nail technician initially refused the manicure and pedicure for him. When I asked why, he chuckled and started walking away. I persisted to show that I would not let up until I understood why. After a pause, he mumbled that Juice was too small for the pedicure massage chair. It wasn't true. The month before, I sat across from a daycare worker who treated her two-year-old girl students to getting their tiny toes scrubbed and painted. Watching them actually inspired me to bring Juice to the shop, but I didn't feel like arguing. Fine, I said. Just a manicure then. He struggled and tried to refuse again. He did not let himself say, no, he's a boy. So he did it. Somehow, under capitalism and patriarchy, a man can be a nail tech, but a boy cannot get a manicure. 
After the soak, light clipping and filing, he asked Juice if he wanted a clear coating or nothing at all to finish. Juice looked up and said, Dark blue. Not clear? The nail tech was either angry or shocked that I walked to the color tray and selected a not-quite-navy OPI paint. With all of the progressive, radical, abolitionist beliefs I thought I held about gender, sexuality, fluidity, and liberation, I felt trapped in that nail salon. Handing the nail tech nail polish was not easy. Tears sat in the corners of my eyes, and a thick balloon formed in my throat. Why was this so heavy? The women in the room had been glaring at me, some spinning their black chairs just to see. Here I was, looking like a twenty-something single mom with a two-year-old on her hip, letting her five-year-old paint his nails with color. It was all true. Grandin and I had recently divorced. Garvey clung to my body during the ordeal. Some women were literally shaking their heads in disgust. Traces of my own fear and the danger of homophobia flooded the room and briefly caught up with me. Should I actually let Juice do this? Will he be safe at school? Should I have asked his dad? I immediately texted Grandin about what was happening and asked if he could call. I made sure that he was on speakerphone when he affirmed the color choice. Was I now proving to these people that my son had a daddy who was okay with this? God, I was so embarrassed. What should have been a harmless, fun activity was now becoming some sort of public spectacle and lesson. Not because Juice wanted to pretend that he had Spider-Man nails, but because people reduced his fun moment to potential claims about his childhood, his sexuality, his gender identity, and my parenting. I felt small. This had to stop. I told his dad thanks and quickly hung up. I stood next to him as the tech did the final coat. Does it look awesome, Mommy? Better than awesome, sugar. But even before his nails could dry, a boy about ten years old scooted to him and asked me, Did you let him do this? Yes. He's a boy, though. Now I've seen everything. Why does it matter that he's a boy? It's good that you've seen this. Hopefully, you'll see a lot more as you grow up and learn a lot more, too. Startled, he shrugged and scooted out of the salon after his grandmother. He only said what every woman in that shop did not say. Juice wanted blue nails. Our society socializes babies even before birth with the color blue. Blue baby showers and baby clothes for boys, pink for girls. People bite into their little gender reveal party cupcakes and blue icing oozes from the center to let them know a child might be born with a penis. The entire action figure toy aisle is blue. Boys can have blue teeth, blue toy guns, blue hair, and blue Valentine's Day cards. But the second juice wanted blue nails, a color that we have been signaling to him for five years is supposed to be his color, because he was a boy, hell broke loose. I could only imagine other times that Juice, Garvey, or any one of our kids realize that they desire blue cards instead of pink cards, or that both bathrooms at school were fine for their needs, and that neither line for recess represents who they are. Will teachers or their classmates punish them verbally or physically? 
We have to be intentional about their relationships to their desires and expression based on their schooling because conditioning them around binaries and heteronormativity leads can turn them into adults that control, punish, and sexually abuse others because of it. It's a matter of violence and justice and life and death. When asked, what about the rapist? I also cannot help but to think about the cops who cause sexual violence. Between social movements, political education, and legal study, I became increasingly convinced that police cannot stop sexual violence, and more, that they are a source of sexual violence. In December 2015, I learned about Oklahoma City police officer Daniel Holtzclaw. Holtzclaw, the son of a police department veteran, targeted black women for violent sexual acts. Most of the women he exploited were poor and had some record of drug use or sex work. He'd corner them, fondle them, pull out his penis, and force them to perform oral sex. They feared if they did not comply, he would assault, jail, or kill them. He was accused of assaulting more than a dozen women before an elderly middle-class black woman reported him to the police. He had assumed that she was like his other survivors, who were more vulnerable to abuse because they were economically exploited. But she was not. He assaulted her as she was driving home through a poor neighborhood that he frequented. Yet she did not live there. Holtzclaw was fired, prosecuted, and sentenced to more than 250 years in prison. Holtzclaw's case and imprisonment did not deter other cops from sexually violating poor women of color. I was sitting in the back seat of an Uber pool when, in 2016, I heard Celeste Guap's story on NPR. Guap was a teenage sex worker in the center of a sexual violence ring with police officers. As many as 30 cops were involved across several law enforcement agencies. My driver, an older black man, said aloud that the girl must have really had a shape on her for that to happen. He was suggesting that if cops took advantage of her, she must have had a nice body. No, she didn't have to have that. She didn't need to have anything for that to happen to her. I responded angrily. He remained silent. The city of Oakland paid her $1 million in a civil suit after she went public. At least one cop died by suicide, leaving a note about his behavior. Seven cops faced criminal charges. Others were fired. Oakland Mayor Libby Schaff famously remarked that she was there to run a police department, not a frat house. But managing sexual violence and exploitation is exactly what running a police department can entail. Former police chief Norm Stamper wrote in his memoir, in my first year, I rode with a cop who spent half the shift trying to pick up nurses in the ER, car hops at Oscars, or women who'd called the police to report a prowler. One summer night, I drove into an elementary school parking lot and interrupted a veteran cop having his knob polished in the front seat of his police car. Over the years, I would see it all. Cops fingering and fondling prisoners, making bogus traffic stops of attractive women, trading freedom for a blow job with a hooker, 
making love with a 14-year-old police explorer scout, sodomizing children in a spouse's daycare center. One study found that 40% of reported cases of police sexual misconduct involve teenagers. Decrim Now, a D.C. campaign to decriminalize sex work, reports that one in five sex workers, or individuals profiled as sex workers, have been approached by police, asking them for sex. From 2005 to 2015, Buffalo News sourced media reports to find that a cop was accused of sexual misconduct every five days. Sexual misconduct is the second-highest complaint of police violence, following excessive force and, unsurprisingly, underreported. What happens when you call the cops on the cops? As a former cop explained, they knew the DAs, they knew the judges, they knew the safe houses, they knew how to testify in court, they knew how to make her look like a nut. How are you going to get anything to happen when he's part of the system and when he threatens you and when you know he has a gun and you know he can find you wherever you go? Since 2005, more than 5,000 cops have been arrested for sexual violence, misconduct, and child pornography possession, among other offenses. Only 400 lost their badges. Why do cops rape? Unlike Norm Stamper, I don't think that there are simply too many rapists who just happen to become cops. I do believe that cops, like all of us, are conditioned by a society steeped in rape culture and gender-based violence. The badge and the baton give cops additional power and protection to act violently. A study found that in more than 70% of cases, officers wielded their authority over motorists, crime victims, informants, students, and young people in job-shadowing programs. They especially take advantage of women, trans women, young people, sex workers, prisoners, and others who are class-exploited because cops, like Daniel Holtzclaw, deem them less credible as accusers and witnesses. In 2015, 86% of trans people who were sex workers or who cops perceived as sex workers reported police harassment, attacks, sexual assault, and mistreatment. The figure may be underreported. Cops can technically have sex with people they arrest without consequence. For obvious reasons, consent is nearly impossible to give freely when a cop cuffs you and you want to avoid jail. More than half of the states permit or do not prohibit sexual intercourse between a cop and someone in their custody. The reliance on police to stop sexual assault comes at a cost. They're sexual assaults of other people. Police sexual violence and misconduct is reflective of sexual violence in the prison industrial complex. Angela Davis's writing on prisons as sites of gender-based violence challenged my unexamined ideas of sexual violence and ultimately police sexual violence. Originally, I had learned about prison rape from neighborhood stories, people who were formerly incarcerated, and movies like Lockdown. Don't drop the soap was a very popular punchline. 
I unknowingly accepted the violence as entertainment and as part of the punishment. When news in the neighborhood broke about men sent away for child abuse and molestation, what immediately followed was, you know what they do to them in there. Touching a child violated a code beyond what the law punished. People on the outside expected people on the inside to make them pay with domination and violation. Davis gave political meaning to these stories. Yes, men's prisons were certainly a source of rape and gender-based violence. I almost always envisioned prison rape as a male prisoner-on-male prisoner type of violence. Even when I used the word prison, I only thought of men's institutions. Davis emphasized that this sexual violence occurred at all prisons, women's prisons too. Furthermore, these acts of sexual violence weren't just between incarcerated people, but also from and among jail and prison guards. There are intentional acts of assault from guards toward the people whom they cage. Sixty percent of sexual violence inside prisons comes from prison staff, including guards. Almost 40% of trans people who have been incarcerated have been assaulted by prison staff and other incarcerated people. The National Center for Transgender Equality found that trans people are more than five times more likely to be sexually assaulted by facility staff than the cisgender U.S. population in jails and prisons and over nine times more likely to be sexually assaulted by other incarcerated people. Davis explains that the countless routine searches, pat-downs, groping, vaginal and anal checks, and much more by guards, are non-consensual and also constitute sexual assault, battery, and rape. Abolishing the prison-industrial complex abolishes another site— of rape and sexual violence. If we want to address sexual violence, closing prisons and reducing contact with police is a start. Patriarchy undergirds sexual violence among police and prisons, and as I'd come to understand, the military. In January 2020, I met Ejiris Dixon at an abolition convening I helped organize in Miami. A little over a hundred organizers and activists gathered to strategize, dream, and discuss the state of our demands. Organizer and activist Rachel Herzing asked the panel, including Ejiris and me, to discuss how we became abolitionists. I was the most recent convert. For more than two decades, Ejiris organized in racial justice, LGBTQ, anti-violence, and economic justice movements. Among many efforts, she built national, statewide, and organizing and advocacy initiatives in response to hate violence, domestic violence, police violence, and sexual violence. She encouraged the audience to read the anthology that she just had published, Beyond Survival, which included stories and strategies from the transformative justice movement, to help us dream, strategize, and experiment toward a world without police and prisons. So many people I respected contributed to the anthology, and I was excited that it was a resource in the world. One particular story stuck with me. 
a woman, Blythe, described being raped by a close friend. A few months later, he came home. He'd broken down during a military boot camp and got sent to the psych ward, a failure. And while he was there, he made a friend, a boy like him. A few weeks later, he found that boy in a bathroom stall, dead. It confirmed what he thought he knew already, that boys like him were too weak to live. He told me that story the day before he raped me. When he raped me, I could see the way he was grasping for power, for some sense of control over his life. Part of me wanted to give it to him. The rest of me wanted to run, but I couldn't. I couldn't, for all of the reasons that only a person raped by someone they love can understand. Shock, terror, fear, shock, shame, pity, shock, embarrassment, shock, politeness, love, care, shock, disbelief, disbelief, disbelief. How could Blythe's friend do this, and how could she still love him? She didn't turn to numbers and statistics, nor punishment. She did not write him off as crazy, sick, or evil. Those labels may help survivors and victims cope and describe the type of person who has harmed them. But when we use them to describe this behavior, we also perpetuate harmful and ableist ideas about people with mental health challenges, especially since they are disproportionately vulnerable to violence. Calling people evil can legitimize any form of punishment that we want them to face for harm they have caused. And calling people crazy suggests that they are singularly a problem because they have deviated from the behavior of normal people. But under rape culture, sexual violence is normal, not crazy, evil, or deviant. Men constitute almost 100% of arrests for rape. Those are just the ones accused or caught. Less than 5% of men were psychotic when they raped someone. What does that suggest about the other 95%? Blythe said this of her friend, The violence of poverty, white supremacy, militarism, assault, they are woven together. No court can ever pull them apart. She captured so many reasons why people sexually assault each other. Scholars have found that among the several major interpersonal motives that underlie sexual violence are revenge, punishment, access, entitlement, opportunity, and the demand for impersonal sex. For example, people, overwhelmingly men, will rape a woman because a completely different woman rejected their advances. Sometimes the rejection is not even about sex, but about a parent or other figure who has harmed them. In the case of Blythe's assault, she asserts that her friend was looking to feel power or control over his life after being kicked out of the military. She was more accessible than fighting the military, so the revenge was paid forward. Conversely, people also use sexual violence to punish the people who directly turn down their advances. This violence often stems from societal ideas that women refuse men out of politeness or arrogance or don't always express that they want sex when they really do. Sexual violence is not simply an act perpetuated by deviance. 
It is a manifestation of race, class, gender, sexuality, patriarchy, and colonial relationships about power, control, and domination. The sexual violence that Blythe experienced did not just happen in her small town. It was happening all over the country and world, and inside and outside the armed forces. In the U.S. military, all genders experienced more than 20,000 instances of unwanted sexual contact alone in 2018. Women constitute 20% of the military, but 63% of assaults, one in 16 reports being raped or groped. Over 100,000 men have been sexually assaulted at one of the 800 U.S. military bases across the world. After the U.S. invasion of Iraq and Afghanistan, sexual violence increased among civilians and soldiers in the streets and on bases as well. If we want to prevent and better address sexual violence, then we must also reduce war and militarism that cause it. Militarism and law enforcement manifest domestically as settler colonialism, an ongoing project to displace, incarcerate, and harm the first inhabitants of the country that became the United States. In 2018, I asked Advancement Project if Puerto Rico could become one of my work sites, like St. Louis and Ferguson. I had attended a presentation that year where interdisciplinary scholar Marisol Lebron had presented on policing and colonialism on the island. I asked Marisol to connect me to scholars and activists on the island so I could support any activism around police if there was a need or desire. It felt odd that I'd had a better understanding of decolonization through South Africa than of active U.S. colonies. After she sent me a list of resources and contacts, I spent months traveling back and forth to meet activists and lawyers traveling to learn more. Puerto Rico, a U.S. colony with limited voting rights, has the world's highest per capita rate of women over 14 killed by their partners. Despite having the second-largest police department after the NYPD, the island has a murder rate six times the size of the United States and an intimate partner abuse rate as high as six times as large cities like Los Angeles. An American Civil Liberties Union report stated that the organization expects the rape statistics on the island to be 100 times the figure that Puerto Rico's police department reports, and an estimated 18,000 people, mostly women and girls, are raped every year. However, I disagree with the ACLU's framing of the report that the island's police are inadequately responding to rape and domestic violence. In the exact same report, the ACLU found that the police are complicit aggressors in the violence because cops commit and underreport the violence. This is not a failure of policing. This is policing. After much research, I could not find any specific data for the U.S. Virgin Islands, the tiny black colony in the Caribbean. The FBI may not collect or publish it. 
Guam, another U.S. colony, has a reported rape of 64.2 compared to the United States' 25.2 per 100,000 people. Colonialism and economic inequality are a primary driver of gender-based violence in Guam. The obvious story is that wealth inequality makes people with less power, usually women, rely on men who have more economic power. I also try to remind myself that economic inequality and colonialism do significant harm, too, especially on people who initiate the harm. To commit violence is also destructive to oneself, and colonialism and poverty can manufacture additional powerlessness underneath the United States. And, as one Puerto Rican activist responded when I said that Puerto Rico should become a state to get resources to stop the violence, we don't need to be a state. We need to be free. Traveling between Puerto Rico, Ferguson, and St. Louis, I read a social media post by one of my childhood friends who had become a cop while we were in college. The post explained that the movement and conversation around police violence made them realize the violent nature of the job, which was not what they had signed up to do. They announced their resignation. I was shocked. I'd only learned about cops resigning from the appeals of mayors and police chiefs who begged people to apply or come to work. In 2018, Puerto Rico, cops had still been staging sick-outs in the aftermath of the hurricanes because they hadn't been paid overtime to respond to the violence. Others quit in the U.S. Between protests in response to Trayvon's death and the peak of the Black Lives Matter movement in 2016, the number of total cops dropped nationwide for the first time in 16 years. Applications were down, early retirements were up, and contrary to what I would have assumed before I began organizing and lawyering, the rate of reported violent crime has been shrinking too. The largest nationwide survey of people reporting to be victims of crime shows nearly a 40% decrease in violent crime from 1994 to 2000, and from 1994 to 2011, the rate of reported serious intimate partner violence declined 72% for females and 64% for males. Since 1991, forcible rape dropped by 60%. Sexual violence against children ages 12 to 17 reportedly declined 56% between 1993 and 2000 including a 72% drop in harm committed by family members and acquaintances. Since 2018, violent crime dropped by 15%, and people who reported being victims of crime dropped by 12%. Rates of serious intimate partner violence, including rape, sexual assault, robbery, and aggravated assault against women, have dropped by 72% since 1994. Excluding simple assault, the rate of violent victimization against women dropped almost 30 percent between 2018 and 2019, perhaps not so ironically, the peak of the hashtag MeToo movement. 
In the same year, 30% fewer black people reported being victims of serious crimes. And, among violent offenses like murder, assault, and sexual violence, the rearrest rate is lower than every other offense, including drugs, property crime, and public order disruptions. Why the decline? It depends on who you ask. There's an arms race to take the credit. At times, the federal government champions law enforcement, criminalization, and incarceration. Government-funded reports boast the number of new laws and sentence enhancements on the books to deter violence. Yet crime and victimization rates that the government touts do not deter people from committing crime. Research finds that harsher sentences do not serve as effective examples preventing new people from committing violent crimes and also failed to prevent convicted people from reoffending. The federal government also admits that during this period, massive federal spending through the Violent Crime Control and Law Enforcement Act of 1994 has had a positive but statistically insignificant impact on rape. The Government Accountability Office concluded that while there was a 26% decline in overall crime from 1993 to 2000, only 1.3% of the decline could be attributed to additional police officers. The majority of the decrease in violent crime, including sexual violence, came from other unspecified factors. Other studies have attributed the decline to preschool expansions and access, youth job programs, and much more. Even the federal government admits this. In 1967, the President's Commission on Law Enforcement and Administration of Justice explained, The criminal justice system has a great potential for dealing with individual instances of crime, but it was not designed to eliminate the conditions in which most crime breeds. It needs help. Warring on poverty, inadequate housing, and unemployment is warring on crime. A civil rights law is a law against crime. Money for schools is money against crime. Medical, psychiatric, and family counseling services are services against crime. More broadly and most importantly, every effort to improve life in America's inner cities is an effort against crime. A community's most enduring protection against crime is to right the wrongs and cure the illnesses that tempt men to harm their neighbors. And again, in 1988, another federal law enforcement commission explained, In searching for ways to prevent or control serious crime, the police look for precipitating causes. While it may be useful to examine what some call the root causes of crime, for example, social injustice, unequal economic opportunity, poor schooling, weak family structures, or mental illness. Such things are relatively unimportant from a policing perspective, since the police exercise little influence over them. The police operate on the surface of social life. These assertions could account for the reductions in violence in the past decades. Overlapping with the decline in sexual violence were significant shifts in society, especially for women vulnerable to sexual violence. Educational attainment and employment drastically increase for women, which can foster independence, economic security, and self-determination. 
Since 1996, Black, White, Latina, and Asian women overtook men as the most college-educated group, representing a global trend. College-age students experienced a lower rate of sexual violence than non-students. The gender pay gap also narrowed. From 1980 to 2018, the average hourly wage of women increased 45%, from $15 to $22, and the wage gap narrowed from $0.33 cents to the dollar to $0.15 cents to the dollar. Women have entered the workplace at vastly increasing rates, representing about one-third of the total workforce in the 1950s, but almost half of all workers by 2015. Between 2007 and 2016, individual chronic homelessness declined by 35%, and since 2010, 20% fewer families experienced homelessness. Investments in education, housing, and employment can reduce precarity that makes people more vulnerable to sexual violence and all violence. For me, being an abolitionist is not a static position, but about learning, dreaming, practicing what we need until we get free. I'm always becoming and hope to learn new lessons, ideas, and practices decades from now. As we work to eliminate our reliance on policing and to reduce violence, we can begin to readily identify friends, family members, or neighbors with whom we can seek refuge if an emergency happens. Rachel Herzing asks us to reduce our own reliance on police, reduce the reasons that we think we need police, and cultivate the safety that we need for our protection through people, networks, organizations, educational materials, financial resources, etc. I believe people already practice this informally and quite regularly. We make sure people leave and arrive safely. Let friends and family members know when we are with new people and confide in others when we experience harm. The woman at my church did not have much money individually, but we pulled it when we could and opened our homes for others' safety. I believe that we should enter relationships, employment, sex work, parties, schools, places of faith, and social organizations with a map to help us navigate what's necessary for our individual protection, and we can invite others close to us to determine what that looks like. Writing in 1989, following the brutal rapes and murders of black women in Boston, Audre Lorde also demanded that we hold accountable black men who pointed to white supremacy and racism as the primary causes of intimate partner violence. Lorde understood the fact and challenged its use. But I knew that no weapon is so terrible as the ones we use against each other, and that black women and men had to start speaking to each other and to our children about this wasteful expression of violence, or we would all be lost. She left nobody behind in her poems inspired by this violence, not the black woman who bled at the hands of a brother, nor any brother who has ever hung his head and wept in stunned silence after the fact, wondering what had ever possessed him. Lord used her poetry as an organizing tool with other revolutionary black feminists to start these conversations across the country. Through conversation and community care, people who cause and experience harm must also learn how to change it. 
I believe in a world where we draw from this legacy as much as we draw from the legacy of Black Panthers to invoke community self-defense, mutual aid, and free breakfast programs to inform our organizing today. The first time that we, all of us, learn about sexual violence should not be the first time we feel or witness it. Sexual and gender-based violence require community-based interventions as well. I was in awe of the level of community organizing and interventions in Cape Town in 2020 during the global COVID-19 pandemic. South Africa was particularly vulnerable following millions of global transmission and deaths. A new, more contagious strain emerged in a country already plagued by stark inequality, drought, police brutality, austerity, housing insecurity, and sexual violence. The national lockdowns exacerbated these ongoing crises. In the United States, police were the primary response. I called Zelda Holtzman to see how Cape Town was faring. When she turned her video on, Zelda was beaming with excitement during a pandemic. She was supporting several communities that had completely transformed under the lockdown. They rejected video meetings. The Internet is unstable anyway. But as the women organizers she worked with often said, you can't help women being beaten over Zoom. The community also rejected the police. A week into their national lockdown, cops shot and killed a black man on his way home for allegedly violating the stay-at-home order. In response, groups of residents, mostly women, organized safety bubbles by block. They took inventory of who was in each house and their needs, medication, food, fresh air, protection from harm. The women created safe houses to take in anyone facing violence, which strengthened community responses to harm and accountability. Using community gardens, these residents harvested and shared food to build up each other's immunity and healthy eating habits. They took their teens on meditative wellness retreats to reduce stress and encourage safe recreation. And yes, of course, they distributed masks and soap and led teach-ins about how to properly use personal protective equipment and sanitizer. In the United States, the primary message campaign for safety was social distancing. With the communities that Zelda supported, physical distancing, social solidarity, relief is revolutionary. LGBTQIA-specific interventions at the community level are indispensable for police abolition as well. Casa Ruby does similar work year-round in Washington, D.C. I learned about the organization in 2018 when I attended a dinner and theater presentation by The Tenth, an independent Black queer media company. For its print magazine, The Tenth wanted to feature letters around LGBTQIA and the criminal legal system. They invited people across fields to contribute to the issue, including two staff members from Casa Ruby. They shared all of the support services and solidarity that the organization offered. Ruby Corrado, a transgender Latina immigrant, had founded the organization in 2012 after years of organizing and mutual aid with LGBTQIA communities. 
The organization boasts providing social and human services to thousands of people every year, including support for sexual and reproductive health, housing, employment, and immigration. Casa Ruby also provides therapeutic and mental health support, including counseling, for people who survive sexual, physical, and emotional violence. Black and Pink provides another example, but explicitly through an abolitionist framework. In March 2019, I sat on a panel with Executive Director Dominique Morgan, a formerly incarcerated trans woman who wore a bright pink shirt listing the number of days she was incarcerated in Nebraska. She had recently assumed leadership of the organization, which was founded in 2005 by Unitarian Universalist minister Jason Lydon. Black and Pink was not only abolitionist, but founded explicitly as an anarchist project of mutual aid and support. They do not rely on police and prisons for safety, because they recognize both as forms of danger. Instead, Black and Pink works independently to build community and organize with people who are incarcerated or formerly incarcerated and or living with HIV-AIDS. The organization provides down payments and two months' rent for members transitioning into housing, bypassing the traditional background and credit checks that bar people with records from securing apartments. Growing from 150 members and one chapter in 2005 to more than 11 chapters and 20,000 members nationwide, their work to close prisons, cultivate relationships with people inside prisons, launch campaigns against the criminal legal system, and serve as community for people returning home disrupts the cycles of violence from the community and the prison industrial complex. Organizations such as Asada's Daughters also work explicitly from an abolitionist lens. The Chicago-based group was founded in 2015 by Black women, femmes, and gender nonconforming people to carry on the tradition of radical liberatory activism encompassed by Asada Shakur to train up others in the radical political tradition of Black feminism, and to learn how to organize on the ground around the demand for Black liberation, particularly a demand for abolition. While they initially were volunteers who focused on political education and organizing with women-identified, femme, and gender-nonconforming teens, they expanded to teach and organize with young men and boys on toxic notions of masculinity, dismantling patriarchal systems of oppression, and understanding the impact of both on interpersonal relationships. We need more community-based organizations that aim to teach children, teens, and young adults in this tradition. It could reduce and prevent sexual violence, gender-based violence, and affirm young people with a range of genders and sexualities. Teaching about violence and systems of patriarchy is exactly what Audre Lorde called us to do in her poetry. We need the proliferation of programs and projects that encourage and incentivize people of all ages to unlearn violence and harm toward each other and practice new ways of being in relationships. 
These efforts are as important as racial, ethnic, gender, and queer studies programs that give students of color a sense of pride about their history and the contributions of their peoples. But often lacking is an analysis of how to dismantle systems of oppression. Learning about women's contributions is not necessarily feminist, no more than learning about Black history necessarily fosters racial justice. We need students to learn about stories of resistance more than they learn about oppression, to experiment with democracy more than watered-down lessons on suffrage, and to fight patriarchy more than replicating it. Within abolition, decolonization, and socialism, the hope for societies free of sexual violence is bright. Organizers in the movements who influence me find it and forge it. In the United States, organizations such as Black Youth Project 100 and Dream Defenders, both originally founded in the wake of calls to send George Zimmerman to prison, have adopted internal processes for transformative and restorative justice models for sexual violence. The restorative and transformative models they use are not romantic or perfect, but through deep experimentation, their members have embarked on efforts to restore relationships between each other after someone has caused harm, and to transform the conditions in which the harm was made possible in the first place. Without law enforcement and with the help of restorative and transformative justice practitioners, young Black-led organizations are not only fighting racism, sexism, capitalism, and militarism in the country, but also attempting to hold their members and leaders accountable for violence inside the organization. Common Justice provides another example of restorative and transformative justice work among people most directly impacted by violence. The founder, Danielle Sered, operates under the assumption that the people who cause harm and violence are usually victims first. The organization employs a five-step model to meet the needs of everyone involved in the harm including services, coping strategies, and accountability. Common Justice operates the first alternative to incarceration and victim service program in the United States that focuses on violent felonies in the adult courts. In New York City, where Common Justice operates, 90% of survivors of violence choose their restorative justice process over sending someone to prison. All over the country, smaller, independent, restorative, and transformative processes occur to varying degrees of success. However, because they are usually private to protect the parties involved, rarely do people talk publicly about how wonderful their individual processes went. It is usually when they are not successful or when harm recurs that they become public. We shouldn't shy away from that fact, but use it as a lesson to improve our approaches. In addition to community-level approaches, police abolition and eliminating sexual violence also require deep legal change that is fully within our grasp. 
Organizations such as Survived and Punished work at the intersection of ending law enforcement and gender-based violence, with a focus to release all incarcerated survivors who are imprisoned because they defended themselves from harm. According to the American Civil Liberties Union, 60% of women in all state prisons, and as many as 94% in particular populations, have experienced physical or sexual abuse. In 2012, a black woman in Florida, Marissa Alexander, fired a warning shot in the air to stop her husband from abusing and threatening to kill her. She was arrested prosecuted, convicted, and sentenced to 20 years in prison. Alexander unsuccessfully tried to use Stand Your Ground as a defense to her actions. In the thicket of advocating against Stand Your Ground because of Trayvon's murder that year, some popular civil rights organizations chose to remain silent about Alexander instead of highlighting the gender and racial disparities in its application. Thanks in part to the growing movement demanding her release, Alexander finally came home in 2017. Survived and Punished was founded as a coalition initially tasked to free Alexander from prison, and the project evolved to raise awareness, resources, and advocacy for other survivors too, including people who have defended themselves from sexual violence. Centoya Brown spent more than 15 years in prison after killing a white real estate agent and youth minister who had picked her up as a teenage sex worker from a Sonic. By the time Brown was 29, organizations like Survived and Punished and thousands of individuals advocated for the Tennessee governor to grant clemency. She was released in 2019 and started an organization to help teenage sex workers. BYP 100 and the Sex Workers Project, among others, organize decriminalization campaigns to protect sex workers from their employers, their customers, and the police, which could all be the same person sometimes. Sex worker collectives want to repeal criminal laws because policing and criminalization of sex work is one of the primary sites of racial profiling, police violence, and mass incarceration of black and brown women, girls, and trans and gender nonconforming folks. Police, prison, and criminalization do not stop sex work. They push it into the shadows where people are even more vulnerable to abuse. Instead, these collectives use a human rights approach, emphasizing housing, health care, income, and the right to self-determination to make their work free from physical, verbal, and sexual coercion. In addition to decriminalization, parts of the Violence Against Women Act that fund law enforcement must be repealed, as well as any state, federal, and local grants that require partnerships between cops and social service agencies. VAWA is hard for me to discuss, especially since so many people with good intentions believed that criminalization and police could provide for women's safety. Yet one woman's police protector is another woman's perpetrator. According to the National Center for Women in Policing, two studies have found that at least 40% of police officer families experience domestic violence, 
in contrast to 10% of families in the general population. A third study of older and more experienced officers found a rate of 24%, indicating that domestic violence is two to four times more common among police families than American families in general. Good intentions don't always keep us safe. Legal scholar Aya Gruber explains in her book, The Feminist War on Crime, that even the feminists most sympathetic to end mass incarceration will draw the line around people accused of domestic and sexual violence, as if the same reasons precipitating other harm do not also account for these forms of interpersonal harm. They do. And between limited gains from police intervention, the harm that cops cause, and the levels of robust sex and gender-based organizing, we deserve and require investments beyond law enforcement. Included in the decriminalization is an expectation that sentences for survivors of sexual violence, as well as people convicted, must start shrinking as we close prisons, cut the size of police departments, and especially as we reduce sexual violence. As I mentioned before, long sentences do not deter people from sexual violence, especially when it happens unintentionally, unknowingly, in secret, in our homes, or by people who rely on their power and status to protect them. If anything, law enforcement exposes people who cause harm to sexual violence, continuing the cycle of rape rather than eliminating it. Abolition of the prison industrial complex eradicates the sexual violence that prisons and policing create and maintain. There is no singular answer to what to do with rapists. We decided. Equally urgent, we must continue to challenge the societal arrangements that leads to preventable pain and suffering. Marriage can be quite beautiful and sacred, for example. Marriage can also privatize dependence. It encourages people to enter relationships for resources and benefits, like health care, savings, and tax deductions. I was 19 years old when I got married, mostly informed by my faith tradition. I was also in love, but very poor, and marriage offered me a stability that I never had as a child. I was so lucky that the person I married was kind, thoughtful, and also very much trying to figure out his relationship to Christianity and his evolving manhood. When we divorced nine years later and became friends and co-parents, I realized how the marital benefits I once aspired to have did not make sense. I could remove him from my health insurance to account for the divorce, but I couldn't add any of my uninsured siblings, whom I would be related to forever. And our children had two options for insurance because they had parents who went to college and worked jobs that offered it. But independent contractors in my family did not have an option that wasn't a financial sacrifice. If we focused on meeting the health care, employment, educational, and housing needs of people in society, then those who want to marry could more freely enter those relationships on their terms. And people who needed to escape because of violence could more easily leave without worrying what will happen if they get sick and need to see a doctor. 
We should heed to calls for investment in the programs, opportunities, and laws that make everyone free and safe. Here, too, universal basic income can help, allowing people to meet their basic needs and not rely on potentially sexually exploitative intimate relationships for income. Removing benefits from marriage accomplishes this, too. With universal health care and other programs like free and quality childhood education, people vulnerable to violence have more free range to move, live, and practice healthy lifestyles. 7. Dehumanization, Disability, and Resistance when I start reading a new book, I write a short letter to myself on the inside cover. The letter usually includes dates, what's going on in the world, where I am, and how I'm feeling. I don't regularly journal, so these notes have become my greatest archive and literary gift. On the inside cover of Teju Cole's Known and Strange Things, I'd written, I am a custodian of my black body. A custodian is a guardian, someone who has the responsibility to protect and provide for something, in this case, a black body. Cole writes this of himself in the book while comparing himself to James Baldwin. He concludes his list with, And I, too, left the church, and I call New York home, even when not living there, and feel myself in all places from New York City to rural Switzerland, the custodian of a black body, and have to find the language for all of what that means to me and to the people who look at me. Church teaches that the spirit is separate from the flesh. Absent with the body, present with the Lord, we offer to each other as comfort after losing a loved one. But being a custodian of a black body had taught me that my humanity is separate from the tender body and mind that I occupy, and I am obligated to protect it. A slave trade made that body racial. Patriarchy made that body gendered. And the heights of sidewalk curbs, kitchen cabinets, and door handles made that body abled. There's more. My children made that body swell. Music made that body dance. Friends made that body laugh. This was the body in my custody. The note I wrote inside the cover a few years ago helped me grapple with what it meant to be human and to reject the language I once used regarding my black body, dehumanization. I did not know what dehumanized meant until someone told me that I could be. To condemn centuries of police violence and racial subjugation, many activists have used dehumanized to describe what their bodies mean to themselves under white supremacy and how others, especially cops and white people, treat them. Less than human. They hunt us like animals. They treat us like property. When they see us. And after Sean Bell's killing in 2006, I accepted and repeated this language. I repeated it because I found resonance with the activists and community members who described our treatment this way. With good reason, Darren Wilson said that Michael Brown had the face of a demon. The New York Times called the teen No Angel. The paper apologized after a backlash. 
In the wake of other viral, violent incidents, the public will frequently discover that local cops depict black people as apes and gorillas in their group chats, as they discovered for the LAPD in the 90s. During the trial of the cops who beat Rodney King in 1991, the prosecutor asked one cop, He deserved to be treated like a human being, didn't he? All right, he wasn't an animal, was he? The cop answered, No, sir, just acting like one. Novelist and cultural theorist Sylvia Winter wrote in an open letter to her colleagues, The news report stated that public officials of the judicial system of Los Angeles routinely use the acronym NHI to refer to any case involving a breach of the rights of young black males who belong to the jobless category of inner-city ghettos. NHI means no humans involved. Cops use this description for everything from disturbances in black neighborhoods to black gang members who had been murdered. No humans involved is arguably worse than dehumanization because it denies the possibility of any humanity at all. It's not something removed, but something that was, is, and always will be non-existent. While I was working with Action STL, I also had been supporting activists in Ferguson around the Department of Justice's consent decree with the Ferguson Police Department. There, I'd listen to organizers pour their heart out during community meetings about how dehumanizing police, courts, and jails were in St. Louis. Testimonies were powerful rallying cries against the oppressive and death-dealing institutions that we needed to abolish. The DOJ adopted this language, writing in the investigative report that documented racial bias in the police department, in email messages and during interviews, several court and law enforcement personnel expressed discriminatory views and intolerance with regard to race, religion, and national origin. The content of these communications is unequivocally derogatory, dehumanizing, and demonstrative of impermissible bias. Yet, the DOJ and the community were not invoking dehumanization for the same reasons. Community members wanted the police to stop ticketing, harassing, and jailing poor black people. The DOJ wanted FPD to do it constitutionally. By focusing on the views and content, the government lawyers obscured that law enforcement and court officials still possess the power to act on those beliefs, regardless of whether they verbalize them anymore. The consent decree has explicit goals. Rebuild relationships with the communities it serves and protects. Ensures protection of the constitutional and other legal rights of the community. Improve Ferguson's ability to prevent crime. Enhance officer and public safety. And increase public confidence in police. Ferguson's police department could meet all of these goals and still subject black people to dehumanizing treatment. In order to try to prevent the Ferguson police from treating African-American residents unfairly, their constitutional powers have to be curtailed. Paul Butler explains, 
Not only is the Constitution, as interpreted by the Supreme Court, insufficient to protect Black people from police abuse, it actually aids and abets the abusers. As I'd felt with Black Lives Matter, I'd started becoming worried that the people we were fighting against could simply use our language against us because it did not challenge the power they possessed. Dehumanization is subjective and can mean everything, anything. Sometimes it is a precursor to violence. Many of the activists I organize with believe that since they don't consider us human, then they can justify their violence against us, that if the cops who beat Rodney King saw him as human, then maybe they would not have beat him back down each time he attempted to stand. Consequently, I was realizing that when we invoked dehumanization as a problem, we often invoked humanization as a solution. We accentuate the fondness of the fallen, what kinds of family, friends, and lovers they were before the police cut their lives short. Family reunion and graduation photos start circulating. Leslie McSpadden said of her son, Michael Brown, I just want them to know who Michael Brown was. That's my purpose. My son was not a bad person. He was not a thug. He didn't have a rap sheet. He didn't tote a pistol. He was not like that at all. Time and time again, families come to defense of their loved ones, as I would for mine. This defense of black life resonated with me deeply as a parent, and I was navigating my concern of it as an organizer and lawyer. Dehumanization and humanization have deep roots in many debates surrounding black life. A 2018 Boston Review essay by historian Walter Johnson helped me reckon with that note I'd written inside Teju Cole's book cover, as well as the histories of the appeals to humanize black people. Johnson was fiercely critical of the scholarly claim that slavers needed to dehumanize black people in order to enslave them. This was it, exactly what I'd been feeling about police. He explained that slave owners depended on enslaved black people's human capacities in order to enslave them, their capacities to think, labor, obey, love, fear, feel pain. He asked, who is the judge of when a person has suffered so much or been objectified so fundamentally that the person's humanity has been lost? How does the person regain that humanity? Can it even be regained? And who decides when it has been regained? The question struck me. Activists charge the police with dehumanizing us all of the time. Why did we bestow them with omnipotence? Was it temporary? Everlasting? Were we human again after the cop wrote us the ticket? While reading the essay, I thought about Stokely Carmichael's 1966 quote on black power. Now then, in order to understand white supremacy, we must dismiss the fallacious notion that white people can give anybody their freedom. No man can give anybody his freedom. And I believe the same of our humanity. In order to understand white supremacy, policing, or any other system of oppression, we must dismiss the fallacious notion that anybody can give us our humanity or take it away. 
Even if police treated us perfectly human, the job is still problematic. The school police who walked kids to in-school suspension treated them with compassion on the way to unfair punishment. Dehumanization language obscured the real problem, police power, not how they view or treat us, but the institution itself. We must focus on reducing police power more than humanizing ourselves. From Walter Johnson, I'd also gathered that just as activists attempted to humanize victims of police violence, abolitionists and anti-slavery advocates attempted to humanize enslaved black people. These forms of humanization were often bound to ableist ideas about class, intelligence, physical fitness, and beauty. Physical and mental fitness were used both to justify slavery and to end slavery. The slave industry relied on pseudoscience to prove that black people were inferior and incapable of surviving outside the violent plantations. Much of this science at the time was mainstream and accepted widely. Pseudoscientific and racist depictions were so virulent that white abolitionists responded by portraying black people as erect, attractive, and intelligent as evidence of their humanity. Abolitionists in the United States spread images of black men portrayed as strong and healthy to offset pro-slavery depictions of black people as animals or deformed. Slavers also attempted to humanize slaves for profit. Auctioneers described whether slaves on the block were of sound body and mind, and owners would force enslaved black people to humanize themselves by hiding disabilities. Both depictions obscured important realities. Slavery was a disabling system and made many black people ill. The problem was slavery and the power to enslave, not bonds people. In Jamaica, planters used the health and appearance of the Maroons to justify slavery and explain away the achievements of Maroons as exceptions to the institutionalized rule of African disability, which consigned them to forced labor. Maroons had a reputation among English planters for strength, wisdom, and physical attractiveness. The planters begged the British Crown for more money to fund more patrols and militias to fight what they described as the unassailable runaways who waged attacks on them. Planters sometimes fabricated and exaggerated the raids to strengthen its patrols, just like police do today. Some British abolitionists used these descriptions inversely to argue against slavery. Bioarchaeologist David Engelman explains that they supported abolition so that Africans could start looking and behaving more like Europeans, which they believed slavery prevented. As I was grappling with this history, I realized that what often remained consistent under dehumanization or humanization was the power to control and dominate black people with all kinds of bodies and minds. Slavery and capitalism exploited, continues to exploit, sight, mobility, smell, hearing, and taste for profit.
For example, a slave's ability to run fast might be profitable if an owner needed to quickly transport produce from the plantation. But a slave who could run away to chase freedom was a liability. At any given point, slavers had the power to sever limbs. Potentially lost in the focus on dehumanization under slavery then, and policing now, is this exact power to disable people. This is a matter of life and death, freedom, and exploitation. Attempts to humanize black people left many disabled black slaves on the cotton fields and in the master's houses. In reading more about northern industry and abolition democracy, I discovered that capitalists eagerly awaited black emancipation because former slaves could toil in the factories. More workers meant more goods could be produced and sold and therefore higher profits for the bosses. So, during the Civil War, the Union Army initially did not rescue or protect black people they perceived to be disabled, and refused to let them into military camps because they could not work. These were supposed to be the soldiers on the runaway side and fighting for freedom. Historian Jim Downs emphasizes that these soldiers did not rescue these disabled black people because they did not want them to be a burden on the federal government. As Lincoln's soldiers traveled throughout the South, they recorded which plantations had helpless slaves under the care of slave owners rather than freeing them. In the continuation of slavery, Downs offers an example. Consider Hannah, a blind slave who lived in the Natchez district. Her owner continued to find work for her in both his garden and in his home, despite the ending of the institution of slavery. But Hannah was not alone. On a neighboring plantation in Natchez, two blind slaves remained enslaved on William Newtown Mercer's plantation. Not just in the Natchez district, but throughout the postbellum South, scores of disabled freed slaves remained enslaved. Their continual enslavement varied according to the wishes of their owners and their own physical predicament. Freedom was not for all black people, just those who could run, physically toil, and prove their worth as human beings in a capitalist society. When slavery became against the law, it didn't just end. Owners tricked or forced newly emancipated black people into working on plantations for several months or years. I had even celebrated Juneteenth, the holiday honoring slaves in Texas who learned of their freedom two years after the Emancipation Proclamation. But it wouldn't be until I was a lawyer that I learned some of the specific failures of abolition and emancipation for disabled black slaves. As Downs argued, if a discourse of equality truly emanated throughout the South, then all slaves would have been free, not just those who could work or those who were connected to wage-earning freed people. No Juneteenth celebrations for them. Northern abolitionists eventually found many free blacks in jail or on abandoned plantations because they had nowhere else to go. 
Humanity had not been bestowed or removed by slave owners, and many disabled black slaves and their loved ones resisted slavery and capitalism's valuation of the body and mind based on ability. Black parents hid their disabled children from being abused or sold. Other black parents relied on disabled black slaves to babysit their children. Slaves physically carried each other into the woods to escape the plantation, including elderly slaves, slaves experiencing pain from rheumatism, and those who had been mutilated as punishment for a prior escape. During Reconstruction, black families appealed for help to rescue their loved ones from plantations and later lobbied for federal funds to help cover someone who had been denied employment because of age or a disability, real or perceived. Toward the end of slavery, flight, more than rebellion and raiding, was the predominant form of resistance. The conditions of slavery fostered nearly impossible choices for black people who could physically escape. Run alone, run with others, return, never return. Not everybody could run, including many children, the elderly, and some disabled slaves. Many ventured anyway. Harriet Tubman did. Tubman is perhaps the most famous abolitionist. She was injured as a teen after she refused an overseer's demand to tie down a black man who had left the plantation without permission. When the black man started running away again, she tried to stop the overseer from catching him. When the overseer threw a two-pound weight to stop the runaway, it hit Harriet in the head. This head injury caused her to fall into deep sleep at random throughout the rest of her life including when she ran away from the plantation. Like black children during Black History Month, at some point in my life, teachers taught me that Tubman made several trips to the South to rescue black people. I knew that she had had a head injury and that slave catchers and patrols had an advantage over her because of it. I did not conceive of her as a disabled slave until law school. When a museum purchased a photo of the younger Tubman sitting upright, the director explained, all of us had only seen images of her at the end of her life. She seemed frail. She seemed bent over, and it was hard to reconcile the images of Moses leading people to freedom. He continued, I also think that one of the real challenges of history is that sometimes we forget to humanize the people we talk about. And I think that younger picture humanizes her in a way that I would have never imagined. Once again, the desire to humanize obscured the full range of how human beings look, even our abolitionist heroes. My perception of her completely changed after learning about the Harriet Tubman Collective, as well as my understanding of her commitments to liberation. I read or reread stories, newspaper clippings, and books about her. Tubman did not solely rescue able-bodied people who could run. She created the conditions for people to survive. She gave opioids to infants and children so that they could sleep and be carried on the journey. She created a wagon to rescue her elderly parents who could not run at all. 
Once free, Tubman became the first woman and the first disabled woman to lead a U.S. military raid when she led Black Union Army troops to free more than 750 slaves during the Combee River Raid in South Carolina. According to historical records, she did not leave anyone behind. For three decades, the U.S. government denied her a pension for her military service, even first paying her a small pension as a widow because her late husband had fought in the Civil War. Tubman supported her family and runaways with next to nothing in her old age. She shared a home with the lame, the halt, and the blind, the bruised and crippled little children, and one crazy woman, according to her biographer. A blind woman living there had spent two decades caring for the elderly Tubman. They did not need to be humanized. They were humans who needed an end to the racist, sexist, and ableist conditions that created slavery and their subsequent economic suffering. Prompted by Johnson's essay and Disabled Slaves' Lives and Resistance, I try to remember the limitations in humanizing victims under police violence without trying to reduce police power. This is challenging. Families want their loved ones to be remembered as more than just victims who were shot and killed in the street. Protesters condemn the violence because victims were somebody's parent, friend, or child. And lawyers who sue the police want to portray victims as appealingly as possible to win their lawsuits. But law enforcement repackages these calls for humanization in attempts to further legitimize themselves. When we invoked dehumanization as a problem, they invoked humanization as a solution. This manifests as more funding for community engagement so they can practice seeing us as humans on basketball courts and in boxing gyms to jog their memory on how to treat us when they encounter us in the field. The 2016 Consent Decree in Ferguson goes further. While the DOJ investigation recognized the dehumanizing treatment from Ferguson officials, it provided cops with mental health services, counseling, free physical fitness resources, adequate time off during uprisings, and competitive salaries. No reparations, services, counseling, or physical fitness opportunities for the communities they assaulted, arrested, and tear-gassed for years. Following the DOJ investigation of the Ferguson Police Department in 2016, I was introduced to the Harriet Tubman Collective. I was the editor-in-chief of the Harvard Journal of African American Policy, AJAAP, and soliciting essays, lectures, art, and syllabi on the Movement for Black Lives, M4BL an ecosystem of organizations that formed as a policy arm of the protests. M4BL's policy table released A Vision for Black Lives, Policy Demands for Black Power, Freedom, and Justice, a comprehensive and visionary policy agenda for the liberation movement that was catalyzed in Ferguson, Missouri, following Michael Brown's death. The vision featured six areas— 
ending the war on black people, reparations, divestment and investment, economic justice, community control, and political power. A policy brief accompanied each pillar with demands, ideas, proposals, and model legislation. Our editorial board wanted to display the breadth and depth of the vision in the journal, as well as responses to it. After I revised and released HJAAP's call for proposals, I read Karima Chevik's submission. She is a blogger, advisor, legislative advocate, and parent activist for autism and social justice. Police are especially dangerous toward black disabled people like her son Mustafa, a tall, neurodivergent, non-speaking black boy. Chevik powerfully pinned. Ironically, it seems that the way to protect our son is to have him steer clear of those who have sworn to protect and serve him. The best policy solutions for reducing catastrophic encounters with law enforcement for neurodivergent black and brown males are those that limit their encounters with law enforcement in the first place. I never imagined that I would teach my son to avoid police. Yet he stands at the intersection of racism, ableism, and disability in a society that empowers police to respond to his black body and his neurodivergence with aggression. Chevik recounted the story of Arnaldo Rios Soto as an example. In July 2016, behavioral therapist Charles Kinsey left a facility to retrieve Arnaldo Rios Soto a patient resident who had walked out to wander the streets with his toy fire truck. Soto towers more than six feet and several hundred pounds. His skin is the color of butterscotch wrappers at the bottom of a church lady's pocketbook. His mental capacity described as the level of a four-year-old, eager to find the candy. Police allege they thought the 20-something-year-old was holding a gun despite repeated pleas from his caregiver, Kinsey, to stand down. Kinsey laid flat on his back and raised his arms high to show that he was unarmed. North Miami cop Jonathan Aleda fired, intending to hit the quietly and calmly sitting Soto, and missed. Aleda shot Kinsey instead. Aleda's first trial ended in a hung jury. In his second, he was acquitted on two charges and found guilty of negligence on the second. The shooting impacted Chevik. She had experience organizing for better police training and spent time lobbying the Maryland State Legislature for an autism training bill for first responders. First responders, unfortunately, include cops. In 2013, three off-duty deputies in Maryland handcuffed and fractured Robert Ethan Saylor's throat. A 26-year-old white man with Down syndrome, Saylor was at a movie theater with his caretaker and attempted to re-watch a film by re-entering the theater without paying a second time. A theater manager called the cops. Ethan's caregiver repeated pleas to the police to not touch Ethan and to let her de-escalate the situation. Ethan died. A grand jury did not indict the cops, and they returned to work. 
Contrary to popular notions, cops are not safe for all white people, and more training does not make people less committed to protecting capitalism. Three cops accosted Ethan over a $10 movie ticket. Ethan's family reached a civil settlement in 2018. His mother lamented, It's been four years of gut-wrenching reports and judges' opinions and depositions and defending my son's right to be seen as human, to be seen as valuable. Police in Maryland began receiving training in a program named after Ethan. But Chevik witnessed police with training continue to assault, shoot, and kill disabled people, including autistic people like her son. Police with more training would still be a risk. By the time she wrote her essay, she had espoused more transformational demands, retraining emergency dispatchers, eliminating encounters between neurodivergent black and brown people and the police, training parents to request emergency vehicles instead of police, removing cops from schools, prohibiting school administrators from calling police on students in crisis, reporting students' arrests to civil rights offices, and establishing grassroots mental health crisis support. Some of these were policy demands, and others were rooted in community-based practices of keeping each other safe. We are each other's custodians, too. I had not been expecting a journal submission on disability, I assigned Chevik's piece to an associate editor for review and went to check my email to read the next submission. There was another one and another one. Two more authors had submitted pieces on disability, race, and police violence. A group of disabled black organizers called the Harriet Tubman Collective contributed a searing submission on erasure and marginalization within the contemporary black freedom struggle. Their writings introduced me to disability justice, a framework that queer, radical, disabled activists Mia Mingus and Patty Byrne began exploring as a paradigm in 2005. With other disabled activists, these women of color accounted for many of the omissions that they experienced from disability rights movements and racial justice movements. Members within the Disability Justice and Performance Project, SINS Invalid, have distilled the framework into principles that include commitments to racial justice, abolition, anti-capitalism, decolonization, cross-movement solidarity, and collective liberation. The Harriet Tubman Collective and SINS Invalid departed from the slavery abolitionists who left disabled people on the plantation from the civil rights movement that often privileged attractive young light-skinned college students who could march and participate in sit-ins, and from some Black Lives Matter activists who attempted to humanize victims of police violence based on education, body size, and parenting skills. These disability justice activists offered more depth by recognizing that all bodies are unique and essential. The Harriet Tubman Collective submission critiqued the first version of the M4BL platform because it omitted disability justice when half of the people who police kill have disabilities. M4BL had mentioned disability in one section, but the collective explained, 
The platform employed the term differently abled, which is considered offensive within disability communities. The phrase differently abled suggests that we are the locus of our disability when we are, in fact, disabled by social and institutional barriers. Use of this term reifies the marginalization that Black disabled-slash-deaf people face within our own communities and oppressive state institutions. They were right, not just about the omission from the platform, but the general practice of disabilities omission and marginalization in broader movements for racial justice and freedom, just as it had been for the abolition of slavery. I had lacked intention in many organizing spaces from neglecting to account for representation from all kinds of organizers, to choosing to have actions and marches without considering various ways that people can participate. It wasn't until Belinda Hall that I was pushed to ask these questions, for example, disabled student activists and those who knew about disability justice tried to ensure that our furniture was arranged so that wheelchair users could navigate the space and that we demanded that the school close, record lectures, or properly clean the sidewalks during heavy snowfall so that all students could make it to campus. When we invoke the police trauma and violence that we experienced in the streets and on campus, that induced anxiety, depression, and other mental health challenges. We criticized professors for their ableist assertion that we were snowflakes. Between 2014 and 2018, the percentage of Harvard undergraduates reporting that they have or think they may have depression jumped from 22% to 31% and the percentage reporting that they have or think they may have an anxiety disorder increased from 19% to 30%. Harvard found that these figures were higher for black students, graduate students, and students with children like me. We were living under constant racism, ableism, and exploitation in one of the most expensive cities in the country, with the reputation for being the most racist. The inverse was true, too. Disability rights movements have often obscured racial and economic exploitation in its advocacy. Talila Lewis, a member of the Harriet Tubman Collective, wrote a separate essay that challenged the disability rights movement to apply an intersectional analysis and praxis to state violence. Disabled people of color are disproportionately impacted by state violence, Even still, most resourced disability rights organizations refuse to take action to end the crisis of racialized people with disabilities dying in our schools, streets, homes, and prisons, while resourced non-disability civil rights entities dishonor the lives of the same people by failing to uplift their whole humanity. Black feminist scholars have faced and combat similar singular approaches to freedom and social movements. Black men dominated leadership and decision-making power in black liberation movements, and white women fought against gender-based oppression without regard to race. Black women organized against formations that excluded them in both spirit and practice. 
Black feminists and radical lesbians marooned and forged new activist spaces for themselves, too. Similarly, the Harriet Tubman Collective, including Lewis, challenged the movement for black lives for perpetuating ableism and called out the disability rights movement for perpetuating racism. M4BL worked diligently to revise the platform, which now includes a demand to end the war on black health and black disabled people. In 2016 and beyond, as activists and protesters fought against police violence that disproportionately impacted black people, disability justice activists raised awareness around the intersections of ableism and state violence. I knew then that the police primarily capture, cage, or kill poor people, black people, and indigenous people. I had not realized that racism, capitalism, and ableism pushed more than half of disabled people into long-term poverty, increasing the chances of violent police encounters. According to the American Psychological Association, people with low vision have unemployment rates that exceed 70%, and intellectually and developmentally disabled people have unemployment rates higher than 80%. One government report estimates that employers pay more than 220,000 disabled people with intellectual-slash-developmental disabilities less than the already low minimum wage. The government permits this super-exploitation while also banning disabled people who receive government support from saving more than $2,000 total. This cap keeps disabled people in poverty and economically vulnerable positions. Disabled people are excluded from the labor market and forced out of schools, not because they cannot work, but because capitalists are not interested in and are minimally required to paying for the cost of accommodations. On the plantation, slavers would sell disabled slaves by the dozen at a bargain when it was cheaper than accommodating them, and they could not derive profit another way, playing the dozens when black people make fun of each other until one person wins, and what source my mother's comedy comes from slaves who were coping with being regrettably sold among the bunch. Under capitalism, it is cheaper to exclude disabled workers who could otherwise work in a non-ableist environment. And by capping savings and refusing to provide universal health care, universal basic income, and adequate protection against exploitation, the federal government chooses businesses over disabled workers. Writer and activist Marta Russell explains, if workers were provided with a social safety net that adequately protected them through unemployment, sickness, disability, and old age, laborers would gain a stronger position from which to negotiate their conditions of employment. These cycles of exclusion from work, schools, and housing creates more jobs, seats in class, and apartments for people without disabilities. Disability justice is also labor, health, and housing justice. 
My family did not have insurance, and our community lacked basic clinics, which is why we relied so heavily on 9-11 for basic medical care. Disabled people and their loved ones or neighbors call the police for help during a crisis when their options for support are limited. Tragically, police contact can result in involuntary commitment to psychiatric hospitals, arrests, and death. Afterward, the police or family might issue a statement saying that the victim was off of their medication at the time of the shooting or tasing. These statements often place the blame solely on the victim. Millions of people skip their medication and are not killed by the police. Additionally, rich people can afford the best prescription mental health drugs and purchase them at the highest rates of any income bracket. If the rich disproportionately use mental health prescriptions, does that mean that they are disproportionately diagnosed with mental health issues? They rarely die during police encounters, even rich black people. Yet a third of disabled poor people on Medicare skipped medication, reduced the dosage, or failed to fill prescriptions because of the medication's cost. Abolishing a society that relies on police requires the abolition of the inequality that makes disabled people susceptible to police violence, including economic exploitation. Even if nobody calls, the police routinely patrol poor, segregated neighborhoods where disabled people, like Freddie Gray, and countless others live. The police contact in our neighborhoods have dire consequences. Talila Lewis writes, Disabled neurodivergent people comprise just 26% of the United States population, but represent up to half of the people killed by police. Over 50% of the incarcerated adult prison population, up to 85% of the incarcerated youth population, and a significant number of those incarcerated in medicalized carceral spaces like nursing facilities, group facilities, and civil commitment, treatment facilities, and hospitals. 22,000 people are involuntarily committed in various institutions and many without any determined release date. Disability justice is more than humanizing disabled people or simply replacing cops with crisis intervention workers. It changes the conditions upon which everyone can thrive. Because disabled people like Freddie Gray are often excluded from the labor market, capitalism finds creative and cunning solutions to profit from them still. A labor market exists predicated on the exclusion of disabled people from the workforce. The clearest examples are elderly facilities where my grandmother lived. They provide jobs for workers who assist people who could otherwise be independent and interdependent in communities that have resources. For others, especially poor, black, and Latinx disabled people, it's policing and imprisonment. When companies, schools, and landlords push disabled people out, police are then tasked with patrolling and surveilling their daily lives. Like slavery, policing also disables people. On a global scale, 
the U.S. exports policing tactics and militarism that inflicts disability as a tactic to gain imperial and colonial advantages. Women and Gender Studies professor Jasbir Puar describes this as debility, bodily injury and social exclusion brought on by economic and political factors. Death and the fear of debilitation can discourage and dissuade occupied peoples from resisting the nations that colonize them. Domestically, shootings, beatings, tasings, high-speed chases, and tear gas create and trigger physical impairments, blindness, depression, anxiety, and psychological trauma. During residential raids, cops use stun grenades that cause blindness, deafness, and other injuries. Criminal justice journalist Radley Balco argues that the injuries are not accidental because, even when used and executed as intended, flashbangs cause injury by design, and when used by law enforcement, that injury is inflicted on people who have yet to even be charged with a crime, much less convicted of one. In May 2014, a SWAT team conducted a no-knock raid to find a young man who was accused of making a $50 drug deal Police broke down the door to a home where he did not reside. They threw a flashbang grenade, and it exploded inside 19-month-old Bunkum Fanasavan's crib. The grenade put a hole in the baby's small chest. Seeing a pool of blood and hearing her screaming baby, Bunkum's mother, Alicia Fanasavan, said police told her to calm down because the child had only lost a tooth. Doctors put him in a medically-induced coma to save his life and cover his exposed ribs. Fonasavin wrote in an essay, I know that SWAT teams are breaking into homes in the middle of the night, more often than not, just to serve search warrants and drug cases. I know that too many local cops have stockpiled weapons that were made for soldiers to take to war. And as is usually the case with aggressive policing, I know that people of color and poor people are more likely to be targeted. According to his family, the child had 18 surgeries before his fifth birthday. The sheriff's deputy who authorized the raid was acquitted of charges. And Buncombe's family settled a civil suit for $3.6 million. Since 2010, an investigative reporter found at least 30 lawsuits a year stemming from SWAT raids that caused injuries. A South Carolina man received an $11 million settlement after a SWAT raid left him paralyzed. He sold 15 grams of weed to an informant, enough for police to secure a warrant for a drug raid on his home. Not a single cop was criminally charged because their actions were legal. Police disable people in the streets, too. At protests, police shoot rubber bullets and hit activists and bystanders in the eyes, many believe intentionally. Tear gas and mace have triggered asthmatic reactions. In November 2016, police launched a concussion grenade at Sofia Walansky when she was bringing water to activists who were protesting Dakota Access Pipeline construction. Wolanski survived, but her arm was nearly severed. 
In 2017, pastor and soon-to-be Congresswoman Cori Bush told me during an interview that officers kicked and punched her until she was unconscious. Police cause physical and psychological violence that impair people every day and long after the initial encounters. Clinical psychologist Jennifer Sumner explained in the Huffington Post that police assaults on the community during protests can trigger post-traumatic stress disorder. Quite a large body of evidence suggests that both trauma exposure and PTSD are associated with developing a wide range of physical health disorders down the line. Chronic diseases of aging, like cardiovascular disease, like having a heart attack, having a stroke, developing blood clots in your veins, all of these are associated with trauma and PTSD. Police ambushes also cause migraines, high blood pressure, diabetes, sleep disruptions, and stress that impacted activists' bodies and minds long-term. Many of us in the streets, including myself, may not yet know the full impact for years to come. I started getting migraines in 2018. As a child, I'd play with the colorful accessibility functions on the Dell from Rent-A-Center that my mother paid for in small weekly installments and at a price three times the computer's value. I would invert the colors to make the screen's background black and all of the text white. Now, with my recurring migraines, I need the color inversion to alleviate the pressure on my brain when I write, even as I write this book. When my migraines are most severe, I must be in a completely dark room and underneath a pillow for days, for any light is too much to bear. I'm dizzy and disoriented. There's evidence that suggests that migraines might be hereditary. My mother has never had them, and I wonder if my time in the streets over the last 15 years is why I have them now, and I pray that I do not pass them on to my children. Around the time I gave birth to my second child, Garvey, in October 2016, I read about a 66-year-old black woman named Deborah Danner. Danner was an information technology specialist who took pride in her intelligence and found solace in her church. She lived with schizophrenia and called it a curse. Hauntingly, she wrote in a 2012 essay, we are all aware of the all-too-frequent news stories about the mentally ill who come up against law enforcement instead of mental health professionals and end up dead. This did not have to be her fate. Four years later, a neighbor called 911 because Danner was ranting loudly in the hallway. Medics came first. Brittany Mullings, an emergency medical technician, testified that Danner was holding scissors in her own home. Danner insisted on only talking to medics rather than law enforcement and agreed to put the scissors down. Mullings entered the apartment and Danner was empty-handed. According to a New York Times feature, Danner had physically calmed down but remained agitated because someone had called the police on her. While Mullings and Danner were speaking, Mullings heard the cops behind her ask each other, Are you ready? Next, 
NYPD Sergeant Hugh Barry rushed from behind Mullings and shot Danner twice. He did not say anything to her before he killed her. The officer was charged with second-degree murder, manslaughter, and criminally negligent homicide. A judge acquitted him. Deborah Danner's essay is so powerful and revelatory about the U.S. She indicts the society that refuses to meet the unique needs of everyone, including people with mental illness who deserve housing, employment, relationships they desire, and the right to refuse confinement in prisons, hospitals, and elderly facilities. Danner said she endured stigma in society and lost a job after confiding in a co-worker about her condition. To save her life and others, she demanded what Karima Chevik had demanded years before, better training for law enforcement to prepare them for encounters with the mentally ill in crisis. What's tragic is that the training that the police had for these encounters did not save her life. The prosecutor argued that the sergeant ignored his training and provoked the confrontation instead of patiently waiting until specially trained people arrived. Instead, the cop disrupted the conversation between Danner and the medic, then escalated the violence by shooting. Danner's tone in the essay shifted when she wrote about the strong support from her church. They know I suffer and still accept me. They trust and support me, offer assistance financially and emotionally, and bring me ever closer to a God who I know loves me. I've begun therapy with the wonderful Naomi, a mental health professional who listens, converses with, and advises me, and has me convinced that I am still a person of worth. This is what I believe is the best tradition of the church, friendships and mutual aid networks. I had known the church to be a messy place with regard to disability. Sometimes, pastors will use the Bible to talk about disabilities as a curse or punishment. And I've seen the same pastors say, For those who are able, please stand to read the Word of God. And ensure that church members visit and support disabled members with food, transportation, clothing, and communion. We did not only pray for the sick and shut in. We were commanded to create the conditions for everyone's participation in fellowship with each other. As I've aged, I've observed pastors shift from praying away mental illness as an evil spirit to encouraging therapy and medication for those who want it. Every major black church where I have been a member used captioning for sermons or rotated between black women who preached the message and interpreted the choir songs in American Sign Language. The love, acceptance, kindness, care, support, and accountability that Danner had was the exact opposite of everything that the police provided. More accurately, police are incapable of providing that support system because they are empowered to arrest, assault, incarcerate, and kill disabled people. Danner's essay also referenced the murder of Eleanor Bumpers, who she mistakenly calls Gumpers, as a failure of law enforcement's response to someone in crisis. Eleanor was a 66-year-old black mother of seven and grandmother of ten who lived in New York public housing in the Bronx. 
Her neighbors described her as a woman who loved children. Historian LaShawn Harris wrote an extraordinary article around Eleanor that details a long history of resilience, migration, parenthood, and economic exploitation. She was born in North Carolina and migrated to New York to live, love, and parent. She worked as a domestic at the Waldorf Astoria until she underwent a major surgery in her 40s and was forced to leave her job. She received very little government assistance because she was disabled. Her daughter said in court that her mother began facing mental health challenges and needed support so badly that her older sister once lied to the police so their mother could be committed to a psychiatric ward. Her sister was desperate for help and, like many families, depended on calling 911. Eleanor spent almost a year in prison, well before she went to New York and faced arrests and involuntary commitments throughout the rest of her life. She still parented and took care of her neighbor's children, who described her as nurturing. The picture most shared online of Eleanor shows her arms folded and face dreary. I made it my profile picture on social media for more than a year before I discovered the backstory in Harris's article. The projects where Eleanor lived caught fire and all of her belongings became ashes. News reporters went to the scene and took pictures of the poor black people standing outside who had just lost everything. After police shot her, this was the widely circulated picture in the media that probably confirmed for some people that she was a large, aggressive old woman. One picture after a fire. What I found remarkable is that her daughter founded the Eleanor Bumpers Justice Committee afterward and used the same picture for the logo. Presumably, she had other pictures that humanized her mother, but I wonder if she used this image because of the widespread circulation or because police should not have the power to kill anyone, regardless of how we perceive them. By the time Eleanor was living in her own place again, she developed cordial and good relationships with her neighbors, even babysitting their kids so they could go to school or work. She owed a few hundred dollars in rent like my mother before we were evicted, and my grandmother before she was evicted, and countless other poor black women that I knew. Eleanor made several complaints about the condition of the apartment and withheld rent in protest. Pipes broke, the toilets flooded. At one point, she said that she was withholding rent because her stove and lights did not work. At times, she refused entry to maintenance workers. Other times, she let them in and held a knife for protection. The public housing agency sent a psychiatrist to interview her. He determined that she was not aggressive and held a knife defensively, like a security blanket. He also determined that she should be evicted and then hospitalized. A group of police officers went to announce the eviction order. The Washington Post reported that the cops arrived with helmets, bulletproof vests, gas masks, plexiglass shields, a six-foot-pronged restraining pole, and a shotgun. This was the NYPD's Emergency Service Unit, ESU. 
is a special unit that was specially trained to deal with emotionally disturbed people. They kicked down her door. She stood there, naked, approximately five foot eight and almost 300 pounds. She waved a knife at the ESU unit that advanced toward her with a metal bar. Officer Stephen Sullivan, a white ESU cop, the person trained for these situations, shot her in the hand that was holding the knife and then shot her in the chest. NYPD then carried her naked body outside, uncovered, bleeding. She died en route to the hospital. New York City's chief medical examiner altered her initial autopsy report to support the police's story that the officer only fired once. It was not uncommon for newspapers to report that he and other examiners tampered with police cases. Destroying and misconstruing data that might have revealed more details about police killings. Sullivan was charged with criminally negligent homicide and faced 15 years. Eleanor's neighbors expressed joy at the indictment announcement and hoped for justice. Many were angry, saying Sullivan shot her twice like she was a dog and that she had trouble walking as proof why she was not a threat. During the trial, white police and white citizens attacked and killed black people out of anger and retaliation. One paper reported that 10,000 cops surrounded the courthouse to rally against the charges, a figure that the paper considered the largest cop protest in U.S. history. The entire emergency services unit, 250 cops, demanded transfers out of the unit in defiance of the indictment. A judge acquitted Sullivan. The department reinstated him and sought funding to purchase stun guns as a reform for future encounters. The more I studied the case, the more I could not believe it. Black NYPD Commissioner Benjamin Ward said that Eleanor Bumpers looked like my mother. That was a lot like the line President Obama used decades later for Trayvon Martin. Both black men responded to racist violence with reforms that did not eliminate the root causes of racial violence. For Obama, it was my brother's keeper and community policing. For Commissioner Ward, the New York Times reported that he noted that some good had come from the case because it had brought about a change in police procedures for handling emotionally disturbed people. The new guidelines emphasized negotiation and non-lethal devices such as shotguns and require the presence of a precinct commander or duty captain to decide how such a person should be restrained. Eleanor Bumpers was killed in 1984. Deborah Danner was slain in 2016. Police who had been part of special mental health procedures shot and killed them both. I wanted to know where the Special Emergency Service Unit, ESU, that killed Eleanor came from. It was already intended as a reform measure against police violence. The reform was killing people. On August 22, 1979, five white NYPD cops shot Luis Baez 21 times for making a slashing motion with a pair of scissors. 
activists and organizers demanded accountability because witnesses said that he was unarmed and clearly in mental distress. Others speculate that he did not understand their English commands because he only spoke Spanish. Consequently, NYPD created the ESU. A week after Baez's killing, white NYPD officer Michael Latimer shot and killed Elizabeth Magnum, a 35-year-old black woman whom he claims slashed him in the arm when he tried to evict her from her apartment. Because she had been flagged as emotionally disturbed, the ESU was on the way to her apartment to assist in the eviction. He killed her before they arrived. There were no civilian witnesses to explain what happened. NYPD reported that cops responded to approximately 34,000 calls in 1984 for emotionally disturbed individuals. 18,997 were eligible for ESU. The ESU says it acted in 844 cases, and only Eleanor was killed. NYPD underscored her death as a tragic departure from the routine behavior of the specialized unit. This is complicated for several reasons. One, NYPD regularly assaulted, shot, and killed black, brown, and poor residents in the city. At the time of Eleanor's death, a medical examiner tampered with autopsy findings that tainted the data on police killings. It's unclear how many homicides actually resulted from police violence. Second, the report did not include any data on the outcomes of the remaining cases. How many emotionally disturbed people did the NYPD injure or kill outside of the ESU? Baez and Magnum, for example, would not have counted toward the ESU data had they been killed in 1984. And finally, if we accept the police's depiction of Eleanor as one death in 844 interventions, we still have to ask, what were the circumstances of the other 843? I did not consider non-killings a success for the police, who were still tasked with managing public housing, private property, racism, inequality, and mental health. What the city invests to evict people with police could be a starting investment to pay for rent and quality mental health options, not violence. This is why the kind of abolition that I believe in does not aim for the police to politely evict elderly black grandmothers from their government-subsidized apartments. Rather, it aims to eliminate the police contact by addressing the root of the problem and ultimately policing. Eleanor Bumper's daughter, Mary Bumpers, organized the Eleanor Bumper's Justice Committee, EBJC, to demand justice for her mother and other victims of police violence. The committee consisted of tenant leaders, welfare mothers, workers, and grassroots community activists. EBJC's work was so much more comprehensive than the reforms that New York City offered its residents. In a press release following the acquittal, EBJC wrote, very disturbingly, if one didn't know the history of the case, one would think it was Eleanor Bumpers and her family on trial. 
there has been a systematic attempt by Sullivan's lawyer to portray Ms. Bumpers as an emotionally disturbed person and dangerous and cast aspersions on her family as the ones responsible for her death. What is the strategy? Why has there been no case made of the fact that the police should not have been involved in an eviction or that they tied her apartment door so even if she wanted to come out, she couldn't have? Or why was the police so insistent in storming Ms. Bumper's apartment when they could have sought some civilized alternative? In their organizing, EBJC demanded the firing and prosecution of Sullivan and other police officers who have killed people in the city and moratoriums on evictions that were underlying the initial police contact. They knocked on doors throughout the public housing communities and fought for the rights of poor people and senior citizens. EBJC worked with the Welfare Action Coalition and the New York chapter of the National Lawyers Guild to fight state violence and combat homelessness and the housing crisis, a crisis that New York City treated with additional police funding. The New York City Housing Authority is the largest public housing authority in North America and the second largest landlord in the United States after the military. Police primarily patrol poor black and brown tenants in the buildings, and EBJC was fighting back. At an event sponsored by the Communist Party, Mary Bumpers and other families of police violence victims gathered to condemn racial violence, from Soweto to Harlem. In the year following the elder Bumpers' death, Nearly 1,000 South Africans have been killed in protests against apartheid schools, police, and military. Bumpers encourage the crowd to fight police terror everywhere. This level of organizing in EBJC was dedicated to eradicating the conditions that made police violence possible. When friends of mine or people I grew up with die, I reread all of our texts and social media messages. Sometimes I'll send a message even though I know they will not respond. I don't know why, but it feels related to my kindergarten seances to bring my father back to life. I find myself searching for clues left behind or messages from the other side. My friends archived pieces of their lives online, so that's where I visited them instead of their graves. I don't know whether this is right or wrong, but it's the truth. When he was killed in 2016, I went through every picture of Jarrell. I watched him in pictures, twisting his fingers with other black boys in our neighborhood. I saw him enter the military to avoid jail or the grave and watched him come home and get a good job with the city and wear church clothes on Sundays. Like a flashing deck, I flipped and saw him turn into a man with a round belly and full beard. I laughed at his story of buying a hamburger from Steak and Shake and then putting a slice of cheese on it when he got home because he did not want to pay the extra quarter. I watched the birth and growth of his two beautiful daughters again. The family gatherings with his big sister Shay, whom I adored, and his little sister Trina, who got on my nerves, and his mom, who used to live next door to my grandmother. 
These colorful digital archives became perpetual obituaries that mix the living and the dead. I don't know why or how, but I found myself in a wondrous and painful rabbit hole with hairstylist Corinne Gaines. Like any of us who curate and archive our lives online, I know what she shared does not represent all of her. She just felt so familiar to me. She lived in Maryland, but she felt like the natural hairstylist who twisted my locks in St. Louis and Kansas City. I would sit in the chair and they'd talk about racism and how black unity was the answer to stopping white supremacy. Before I had children, I would listen to them talk about raising their black sons to protect themselves from violent white men and police officers. On any given day, I could hear traces of pan-Africanism or black nationalism. Black women protect and provide for black men, and black men must protect and provide for their families and communities. In post after post, Gaines made clear that she was compelled to spread messages like these. But the farther I went back, I noticed a remarkable shift. Like Jarrell's pictures, I saw beautiful portraits of Gaines's family. I watched her belly grow with her children, a son and a daughter. She was fly. The hairstylist seemed to love stripes and lip color. Her pictures were mostly selfies, kids, and positivity memes until April 2015. She then made a political post about Freddie Gray, who had been killed by the Baltimore Police Department. When police surrounded hundreds of black kids to stop them from protesting or going home after school, the kids retaliated by throwing rocks. Cops threw rocks back, often first. Gaines lived in Baltimore. She criticized the contradictory calls for the children to be mature when the police taunted and teased them. On March 20, 2016, Gaines honored Sandra Bland online saying that she saw herself as a younger version of her. Bland, who lived with epilepsy, had also been very critical of police and white supremacy online and had inspired Gaines to start sharing and posting messages to raise consciousness for black people facing racism. Gaines, like Bland, was pulled over for a traffic violation. Her son and daughter were in the car. She began recording immediately. Gaines did not want to raise children who submitted to racial violence and pushed them to be vocal about how the police killed black people. When the cops told her son that they were his friend and his mother was lying about police killing black people, Gaines became angrier, saying, I don't have to lie to him. I can pull up a video right now of you killing people for no fucking reason. People that look like his uncle, his brother, his sister, anybody. The cop just responded with, you don't realize what you're talking about. Here is a black mother witnessing a movement against police violence being told by a white cop that she is lying about police violence to her children. Cops took her to jail for resisting arrest because she did not want them to tow her car for having improper plates. She was in jail for two days and she said she was denied food and water while she was there. Police transported Gaines to the hospital, where she says the doctors told her she had miscarried while she was in jail. My heart broke watching her videos. 
Police went to Gaines's house to issue a warrant for her arrest because she had missed court, and to issue a warrant for her fiancé, even though his address on file was different. She did not open the door when they knocked. Agitated for being ignored, cops picked open the lock, but the chain lock stopped the door from opening all the way. When they kicked the door down, Gaines was sitting with a gun in her lap to defend herself. Her fiancé and daughter eventually walked out of the apartment. Gaines was streaming the encounter on Facebook Live for safety and transparency. Cops told Facebook to cut the feed from the public, and the social media site complied. A cop shot Gaines when she walked to the kitchen toward her son. The bullet also hit her child, who survived. She died. The district attorney declined to bring charges. A jury awarded her son $38 million in a civil suit. I found it all profoundly confusing and unjust. Gaines's fiancé told the police that she had been battling mental illness and had not taken her medication. But was that it? Why was it supposedly crazy for Corinne Gaines to be a custodian of her black body, to defend herself against the police, who had told her that she was lying to her children about viral police killings? Who took her to jail, where her treatment caused her to have a miscarriage? Who had severed Freddie Gray's spine? The Baltimore Police Department was the subject of a federal investigation and prosecution because cops had been planting BB guns next to people they killed and planting drugs and illegal raids they conducted. During a trial against BPD officers, some cops shared that they and others illegally entered homes to see what was inside first before obtaining warrants. This is the context in which Gaines found herself in her apartment, surrounded by cops. I do not deny the fact of schizophrenia, depression, bipolar disorder, and much more. I have been pushed to understand that those diagnoses are only one part of people who are complex beings. However, I wonder how these diagnoses would manifest in a society that is not racist, capitalist, ableist, and carceral. I do not believe that it's mere coincidence that Corinne Gaines, Deborah Danner, Eleanor Bumpers, and Elizabeth Magnum were killed in their homes while defending themselves from the cops, no more than it is coincidental when white men commit mass shootings. Patriarchy, militarism, and white supremacy have historically empowered white men to shoot and kill in mass with impunity and with reward. Killing people in mass meant getting slaves, land, oil, coal, votes, power. In contrast, black women have historically resisted this violence from their partners, white men, slave patrols, and the police. Mental illness cannot explain this away, especially since disabled people are much more likely to be victims and survivors of violence than others who cause it. The society is violent. This does not have to be the case. We could have a society where Deborah Danner's family and workplace trust and accept her, like her church and therapist, and she could share as much or as little about her health without risking being fired. In that society, 
Eleanor Bumpers would not have to live in the projects because there would not be any projects, but different kinds of quality housing options where she could choose to live. In 1984, the minimum wage was $3.35. That means that she would have sold an hour of her labor and time for less than $5 and still been poor, regardless of how hard she worked. Instead, Eleanor could have received a guaranteed basic income and could have chosen labor that was not painful and that she enjoyed, rather than a job she was relegated to perform because she was poor. Anyone who lived in apartment buildings as she did would not have cops show up to enforce evictions when tenants complain about repairs. Instead, cities would regularly send weekly cleaning and maintenance crews into apartments and neighborhoods. In that society, Sandra Bland might be here still, too. When she told the police officer who stopped her that she had epilepsy, he replied, Good! Bland should not have had to endure racism, sexism, and ableism from that cop and could have started the new job at the HBCU that she was driving toward. Corinne Gaines would no longer have problems with white supremacy and police violence, which we must continue to eradicate. Without racism and viral police shootings, I wonder if her social media would have continued to show her babies, her bright lip colors, her striped outfits. I met Dustin Gibson in January 2020 at the same abolition convening where I had met Egeris Dixon. We were in a few small group sessions together. I realized that he was a member of the Harriet Tubman Collective and had submitted the critique of M4BL when I was the editor-in-chief of the Harvard Journal years earlier. Dustin told me that he grew up in southwest Wyoming and had family who lived in a small Missouri town called Kenlock. Decades ago, white homeowners in Ferguson had set up a mini-municipal apartheid wall to prevent black residents from Kenlock from coming over. Kenlock was originally a commuter town for white business owners and politicians. They let black servants live on a separate plot of land nearby, and this became Missouri's first black town. Kenlock had a thriving social, civic, and political community until white people nearby prohibited its expansion and sold off homes to a developer for an airport runway that never happened. My aunt's home on Dade in Ferguson bordered Kenlock. I'd look from the back seat on the drive there and see grass grow taller than the car. Apartment buildings had tenants, gates, and gaping square holes that windows should have filled. All of those memories rushed back when Dustin said Kenlock. Due to racial zoning and segregation, it had become one of the poorest suburbs in North County. Dustin moved around after several evictions and a year spent living out of his truck. He moved to Pennsylvania, secured jobs at Goodwill and Staples, and started volunteering at the Center for Independent Living, a community-based, cross-disability, non-residential, private, non-profit agency that is designed and operated within a local community by individuals with disabilities. The Ferguson uprising happened while he was volunteering. His family was still in North County, so the protests took place near their homes. 
Dustin told me that Michael Brown's death and the subsequent activism surrounding it made him start paying attention to disability, policing, and incarceration. He explained that after the uprising, police shot two people whom he worked with at the center in Pennsylvania. Both men had been diagnosed with schizophrenia. The first one lived and is now a wheelchair user. Dustin was conscious of disability, but not as a consequence of police violence. Community members organized around this particular shooting, which occurred after several high-profile acts of police violence in Pittsburgh, including Johnny Gamage. Following the aftermath of the protests for Rodney King, Congress authorized the Department of Justice to sue local and state agencies over patterns and practices of discrimination. These lawsuits often become settlements called consent decrees, like the one in Ferguson. The very first consent decree was with the Pittsburgh Police Department after local cops killed Gamage, a black man they pulled over because he was driving a Jaguar. The autopsy listed homicide by asphyxia due to the stop of airflow to his chest and neck. His last words were, I'm 31. According to Dustin, Gamage's death in 1995 and the police beating of black high school student Jordan Miles in 2010 had laid the foundation for subsequent protests that he joined. The second person from the center in Pennsylvania, Bruce Kelly Jr., did not live. Dustin said that in January 2016, Kelly and his father were drinking beers at a public gazebo a few blocks away from the center when the police approached them. Kelly resisted an officer when she tried to arrest him. He then went for a walk away from the neighborhood for 20 minutes. Per Dustin, when police from three different departments found him, 10 cops surrounded him and used pepper spray and batons and tased him five times. They threatened to send a canine dog to bite and retrieve him. Kelly threatened to stab the dog in self-defense if it attacked him. Police sent the dog to attack him and shot Kelly several times in the back when he began to stab it. The kill shot was in the back of his head. Like Michael Brown, Dustin said Kelly's body was left in the street for hours, uncovered, and police had to direct traffic around it, including a school bus. Cops took Kelly's father to jail on charges, most of which they dropped, but did not release him for his son's funeral. The police department had a grand televised funeral procession for the canine. The murder angered and devastated Dustin. He said that the police who killed Kelly were trained for encounters like those and failed miserably. Or so he thought. He had originally accepted the recommendations of President Obama's task force on 21st century policing for more police crisis intervention training. He believed that raising awareness in police departments could be a solution to stop the violence from the police at the time. But in this case, Dustin emphasized that the police who killed Kelly were aware of his psychiatric disabilities, but he still tried to work within the confines of the criminal legal system for change. When Dustin went to St. Louis in the aftermath of the Ferguson protest, he joined other organizers to arrange for community members to meet police officers to put an end to the violence. 
He assisted with a crisis intervention training at the police academy. He was not particularly enthusiastic about accepting these training reforms wholeheartedly, but they were a solution, which was seemingly better than no solution. I felt deep resonance when he said that he thought fixing the police was a solution to violence, until the trained police kept killing people, his friends, people who lived in Pennsylvania, strangers. He started organizing with other disabled activists, studying abolition for political education, and working full-time to end the institutionalization of disabled people, particular in nursing facilities, prisons, and jails. He realized that the police could only exacerbate crises that his community experienced. I mean, I'm talking about 26-year-olds that's like, yo, I have diabetes, I'm sleeping in my car, and my girl just kicked me out, and I'm about to drive to Florida, so I'll have somewhere warm to stay. And my foot is swollen because I can't store my insulin anywhere. So it's like those types of situations. And then I see, like, just the way in which, like, the legal system has been a part of perpetuating that. When I spoke to Dustin again, I watched him fill with stories of people he loved and lost. Samuel was one. He was a 60-something-year-old black man. What do you call the shed in the graveyard? Dustin asked me. He was living there. He was living in the basement of the groundskeeper in the cemetery. Samuel was in a state waiver program. He had personal care attendant services to assist with daily activities, but he didn't have support for the hours that he actually needed. Dustin explained that the lack of investments in these types of home and community-based services is one of the main reasons people are forced into institutions. He tried to assist Samuel with moving into a house through a program. They could not start the application over the phone and needed to find transportation to complete the paperwork. Three months after Samuel submitted it, the police arrested him for having heroin. Samuel had cancer and was in constant pain. The program would not let him move into the house without going to court. He was too sick to make the court date. He died a few months later, inside the cemetery. Dustin could not find any of Samuel's family and had to claim the body himself for burial. By the time we met in person, Dustin said that he was 1,000% abolitionist. Geographer and political theorist Ruth Wilson Gilmore's concept of abolition as presence rather than absence influenced him to think about dismantling the institutions of police and prisons, while also building the world that we want. Specifically, he'd already accepted an abolition of asylums and nursing facilities through his work in organizing, and he began making the same connections about police and prisons. He was concerned that abolitionists often miss the need to abolish institutionalizing practices, which can be as or more carceral than police and prisons. We can accomplish this, too. Dustin made sure to say that much of what we need is already here. He believes that care for disabled people should be free and that caregivers should be compensated fairly. 
By care, he meant that people in our community should learn how to get somebody out of bed, organize groceries, set schedules, and whatever other daily activities people need for survival. He believes that those who want to receive care should learn independence from people in their peer group as much as possible. And I would add that for me, this is what it means to be a custodian of one's body and mind. Dustin meant independence that is connected to one's self-determination so they can learn how to use the phone, catch a bus, drive, ski, cook, whatever they would like to do. I thought about Rachel Herzing because she often discusses how abolitionists should practice building skills for their own survival and thriving. Dustin was echoing a similar sentiment, noting that when we discuss abolition, it's largely to imagine different societies and systems. But he wanted to emphasize that we all have to imagine and become different kinds of people, too. I told Dustin that I completely understood. My grandmother went into an elderly facility when I was 15, and she was 68. She had two strokes, and her lung collapsed. The facility that she went to did not assist her properly to regain strength, and she became a wheelchair user. Nobody in our family had space or resources to take care of her. In St. Louis and other cities, Black and Latinx women overwhelmingly perform care work and are grossly underpaid, if at all. Working-class women and migrants often do this labor for free in their families. Inside the facility, my grandmother became blind and was diagnosed with breast cancer. Dustin laughed when I told him that that did not stop her from having boyfriends that she would sneak off with inside. Really, Grandma? I said after the facility called and said she had temporarily gone missing. Child, I am grown, she cackled back. Dustin, Karima Civic, Mary Bumpers, Deborah Danner, and others demonstrate what is possible with disability justice and abolitionist frameworks. They have called for independence, acceptance, love, solidarity, and trust with and among disabled individuals of all backgrounds. Proactive planning, independence, and self-determination, and community-based care work can meet the unique needs of everyone's body, mind, and spirit. I agree with Dustin that we already practice much of it. We must share best practices, skills, and resources between individuals, families, friends, and communities to strengthen this support. Housing crises, gentrification, and residential displacement can disrupt close-knit blocks and neighborhoods. Tenant groups, homeowners, and block associations must oppose these when possible and attempt even harder to keep the community close through organizing accessible events and mutual aid. Disability justice activists and the families of police violence victims have also organized moratoriums on evictions and demanded an end to police violence and housing and voluntary treatment for people who need it. Scholars must conduct research in furtherance of these demands and stop trying to improve relationships between cops and the people whom they surveil. They can start by examining the nature of 911 calls to help shift resources to accomplish the goals of disability justice organizers. 
More than 200 million calls occur each year for everything. Suspicious activity, bad food, heart attacks, loud music. The data could offer specific foundational understanding on why people think that they need police and help communities get to the bottom of their problems without cops. More urgently, the data could show why people rely on the police for themselves or others during a mental crisis. Community-based organizations can do this through door-knocking campaigns and surveys to inform concrete responses or alternatives to real and perceived harm. Critical Resistance's Oakland Power Projects, OPP, does a version of this by building the capacity for Oakland residents to reject police and policing as the default response to harm and to highlight or create alternatives that actually work by identifying current harms, amplifying existing resources, and developing new practices that do not rely on policing solutions. I spoke with a former OPP organizer, Onyinye Alhiri, who was in an early training cohort. She said that OPP interviews residents for their Know Your Options workshops. Early cohorts primarily consisted of residents, doctors, nurses, paramedics, therapists, and other healthcare workers who wanted to be responsive in emergencies without calling the police. Trainers conducted the sessions on different issue areas through an abolitionist framework, including behavioral health crises, acute emergencies, and opioid overdose prevention. Critical resistance provided medical kits and compiled emergency and preventative resources for the participants based on the interviews. The members of the cohort were trained sufficiently to replicate the training in their organizations. OPP helped participants develop concrete responses to different scenarios to eliminate contact with police and reduce the potential for violence. Onyinye joined Critical Resistance after she completed OPP and helped update the curriculum to make it widely accessible. Utilizing the train the trainer model, Critical Resistance and OPP healthcare worker cohorts have offered over 50 Know Your Options workshops in Northern California. As individuals and communities are building preventative and emergency responses, cities must also stop dispatching cops to people in mental distress, especially since the police use the word crisis to escalate their violence. For more than three decades, the Crisis Assistance Helping Out on the Streets, CAHOOTS program in Eugene, Oregon, has handled nearly 20% of the city's 911 calls without police. CAHOOTS is staffed by a local clinic and dispatches unarmed, non-law enforcement medics and crisis workers for mental health-related crises, including conflict resolution, welfare checks, substance abuse, suicide threats, and more, relying on trauma-informed de-escalation and harm reduction techniques. More than 60% of Cahoots' clients are homeless, and 30% live with severe and persistent mental illness, SPMI. 
In 2019, they responded to 24,000 calls and called for police backup 150 times, less than 1% of the time. Other cities are following Eugene's lead, cities as large as San Francisco and Los Angeles. While these programs can be a step toward reducing our reliance on police, they are not necessarily abolitionist. The cities that have these alternatives will still use cops for evictions or to respond to theft, sexual violence, etc., which is why it is especially important to undermine the conditions that give rise to violence and displacement in the first place. Additionally, if we want to reduce and eliminate ableism and disabling injuries, then we have to reduce and eliminate police. Media and police dismissed Corinne Gaines for calling the police kidnappers. But cops have a long history of kidnapping black, brown, Muslim, and poor people for detention and torture. In Baltimore, police conduct life-altering rough rides to intimidate and injure the people they arrest. In 1997, four NYPD officers violently cracked Abner Luima's teeth and sodomized him with a broomstick. Luima had to undergo several intestinal surgeries. A decade later, he was still having issues from his previously perforated bladder and pain from the horrific memories. Luima received $8.75 million dollars the largest payout for a police brutality case at the time. He used the money to open hospitals and fund educational opportunities in his homeland, Haiti. Between 1972 and 1991, Chicago Police Department Commander John Burge allegedly led a torture ring against black Chicagoans, using racial epithets, electric shock, suffocation, and brutal beatings. The Chicago Torture Justice Center offers healing resources to the Chicago Police Department victims and their families who suffered physical and psychological torture. The center was founded as a result of the organizing efforts of We Charge Genocide, a coalition of activists who won financial reparations and free tuition as a result of the campaign. Middle school students across the city will also learn the history of this torture and the campaigns to stop it. Aislinn Pulley, the center's director, emphatically says that the police torture justice center that 